This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Burke's Laundromat. Open seven days a week. Burke's Laundromat. We do alterations. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it's the first full episode back after the new year, and we're watching the rest of the Candyman franchise with 1999's Candyman 3, Day of the Dead, and 2021's just Candyman. Let's get right into our first movie, 1993's Candyman, Day of the Dead, written by Alfredo Septien and Turi Meyer, and directed by Turi Meyer, of course based upon the characters created by Clive Barker, starring Donna D'Errico, Tony Todd, Jesu Garcia, Alexia Robinson, Mike Moroff, and Wade Williams. I did confirm that his name is actually pronounced Jesu. Hi, my name is Jesu Garcia. It's short for Jesus, but he pronounces it Jesu, so. Yeah, I mean. Kind of have to go by what people say. Whatever they want to be called. Uh, if you recognize that name at all, the last time we had him on our show was when we watched our first entry in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. The moment he was on screen. <laughs> I was like, Elm Street. <laughs> yes. I know that face. He's the guy who strangled in the prison cell. <laughs> <laughs> Blamed for killing someone because he's the only one around. Yeah, oh, that's a good point. And you can't see who killed the person. That's a good point. And they were stabbed to death with something <laughs> on their hands. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Oh, I did. <laughs> immediately, a whole bunch of thoughts came to my mind. Well, I guess not immediately because he didn't. that hadn't happened yet. But uh, Once it did, yeah. Yes. Well, Kelsey, what is Day of the Dead about? So now... Our focus is the great-great-granddaughter of Candyman. Yes. If you remember in Candyman 2, the focus was the great-granddaughter. And then, And then her mom, who was, oh, God, from, from Alien. She has a daughter at the end, if you remember the end of Candyman 2, with the little mobile of mirrors above her bed yes. for some god-awful reason. And she's about to say Candyman, and then her mo- mother shuts her up. So this is that little girl, which means this movie takes place in the future. <laughs> it takes place in 2020, which is actually after... The next one that we're going to watch takes place, which is in 2019. Ah. But the next one we're going to watch is just going to pretend this one doesn't exist. Yes, it's very Halloween <laughs> in that way. Probably for the best. <laughs> but in the second one, what is his goal? So in the in the very, very first one, Candyman's goal is to basically obtain another lover. Basically, another white woman. Well, it's... It's her incarnate. Yeah, it's implied that she's like a reincarnation of his original love. There's all that story that happens in that, and he wants her to be his victim. And then 
in the next movie, part two, it's his great granddaughter that he wants to be his victim. And the I, the whole idea in all of these is that they will talk about us for generations, you know. And so this one just continues that with the next in his bloodline. Okay, but there was nothing sexual in the second one, I right? I don't think so. Because I don't remember there being anything weird about the second one. Right. Way. This one gets a little bit more sexual, he, though. Well, no, he gets very sexual with yeah. his great-granddaughter. And I'm like, I'm not okay with this. This is weird. It's very weird. I, I, well, I mean, we mentioned, I think, in the first one that going to, like, the relatives thing is unnecessary. And so in this one, it's just they're doubling down on that thing that was unnecessary from the last one. Mm-hmm. He's headed after his great-great-granddaughter, who is an artist and has found all of his paintings and is putting them up for display so she can show the world who Daniel Robitaille really was. Well, she didn't want to. Her boss made her do it? I don't know. It's a very weak storyline. Yeah. I mean, she wanted to show the art. She just didn't want it to be from the angle of this is the famous mythical urban legend UL. Just my favorite UL. Killer Candyman, his art. And she's like, no, this is Daniel Robitaille's art. A man who, until these myths started coming up, was just an artist who was in love and was lynched because of it. And so, like, she's trying to humanize him as as what we know he was. And not this stupid myth that's obviously untrue. We'll find out later that she has she she has perfectly good reason to believe that it is true. And just... <laughs> refuses to even consider it for a she while. She has some reason. I don't know that it's perfectly good. I mean, she could believe that her mother killed herself. The movie is available basically only via Tubi. Nowhere else, and you can watch it with ads. Should people watch Candyman 3, Day of the Dead? I'm gonna say no, but I don't think this movie is as bad as everyone says it is. Yeah. I think it's actually a very typical run-of-the-mill horror movie. And I think that because it's part of this franchise, like, people think it's going to be really, really terrible because the second one is terrible. I went back and listened a little bit to our general thoughts on that one, and we were, like, livid. We hated that movie. Yeah, no, but this movie is just, this movie, if it wasn't part of the Candyman series, if it was just some other mythological thing, it would have just been a movie you forgot about. Totally, Yes. But which is exactly why you don't need to see it. Yes. But we're not, it's not quite as just generally offensive for some weird reason as the second one, (laughs) which is just let's make the first movie again, but worse. Yes. And that was just uh, infuriating. (laughs) I mean, I guess you could argue that's kind of what's happening here again. I mean, there's always like a through line to a Candyman movie, right? There's always murders. Somebody's accused of those murders, even though they didn't do it. You know, people don't believe that there is a Candyman, so somebody has dared to say the name five times. And, you know, like, all those are elements of Candyman movies. They're in all four of them. But the second one was literally just the first one again, but instead of Chicago, in New Orleans. This one, in Los Angeles. Yes. Since there's a large Hispanic population in Los Angeles, Day of the Dead. Yes, and I don't know, this one I felt like it was at least trying to take that concept and put it in like a new... A modern context. Yes. and Which is kind of what the first one was doing. Yeah, I see what you mean. I don't know. 
Something about it rang more true for me sure. than the second one. Not to say that it's a good movie. Yes, yes. Again, <laughs> again, you don't need to watch this movie. Don't feel compelled to watch it because of this description we've just given. Yeah. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 1999's Candyman, Day of the Dead. The screen's most brutal killer is back for blood. They say he came back from the dead. His hand replaced by a bloody hook. And revenge never tasted so sweet. Believe. They say he called his name five times into a mirror and he appears. Candyman. And when he comes, he'll be the last thing you ever see. Candyman. Hate generates hate. Candyman. Evil breeds evil. Candyman. Be my victim. Candyman. and Entertainment presents Tony Todd. Feel my pain. And Donna D'Errico. It was the Candyman. He's real. Candyman, Day of the Dead. Help me. Help me. From Artisan Entertainment. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Candyman, Day of the Dead begin? With a scene that is totally meaningless? 100%? Oh, yes. Like, well, no, it's not. We'll find out later that her mother died in the bathtub. I get, oh. But okay. in the context of what we see originally, it's like, what is even happening here? What does this have to do with Candyman? It felt like a trailer shot. That's what it felt like to me. We get a big titty blonde in her underwear. Like, there's this movie is that kind of movie. But I don't think she's that bad of an actress. That, exactly. Okay, so this is Donna D'Errico. She was a, a Playboy Playmate of the Month uh, back in 1995. She was on Baywatch. So she was basically TNA. Like, that's what she was utilized for. But she also, like, had an interest in drama from a really young age, and she went to drama schools and stuff like that. So she wasn't incompetent. Like, she was perfectly fine in this movie. Yeah, I didn't think she was that bad. Right. But yeah, so there's all this buzzing, and it's an all-white bathroom. Oh, yeah, with sweets to the sweet written in blood on the yes, wall. Yes, which, in the original film... Mm-hmm. Isn't that more about, like, what the gangs are writing on the walls than it is about Candyman? Well, the gangs definitely do write it on the walls, but it is kind of his slogan. Well, it becomes that in the second one. Yes. Because uh -huh. they have the villagers say it to him as they're torturing him to death. Yeah. Uh, it's but part of the myth built up. Like, there is nothing about Daniel Robitaille that ever said sweets to the sweet, mm -hmm. as far as we're aware, in his life. Mm-hmm. And then they write it on shit in a public bathroom, and then it's used in part two, and yeah. Uh -huh. So it's written here, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense that it would be written here, mm -hmm. if you're thinking about it. There's a bathtub filled with blood and a hand, which as Chris points out, yes, that's going to be her mother later. But without that context, and then it is immediately gone, it just kind mm -hmm. of feels like it was just a jump scare. Yes, and again, her mother is the main character from the previous movie. And then we get to see Candyman, and he slashes at the screen, and we get a title card. Like, it feels like Scream. It feels like the joke beginning yes. of uh -huh. the stab movies. Yes. You know? And she wakes up again in a tight-fitting shirt and panties to 
feverishly draw something to sketch the man she saw in her dream, and we will never see her draw again in the entire movie. Like, the fact that she is an artist never comes up. It is never relevant. But then she tells us the story again about her great-great-grandfather and what happened to him, and you're thinking, okay, well, yeah, they need to do that for anybody who hasn't seen the other movies. I get it, right? And I kind of appreciated that they go through it quickly, right? But no, they're going to say it again. We're going to get a whole rehash of this same story later, only longer and slower and with flashbacks. Flashbacks. And you're just like, then why did we need to quickly recount it earlier in the film? It's also weird because this main character, Donna D'Erco, Caroline, she recounts it. She says, people say. What do you mean people say? (laughs) This is your heritage. He is your great-great-grandfather. Well, because I think she wants to remove herself from believing in it. Yeah, but this isn't an urban legend for her. This is actually her family story. I wrote down here, why don't you know any of the stories of people claiming he was a real killer? Like, she has to almost be told about, like, how he came back and killed all these people, and then the story of... What's her face from the first movie? And it's like, how do you not already know all this stuff? No, I think she does know all this stuff. There's something about the context there that was very weird. Hmm. Well, anyway, her roommate, or is her roommate wondering if it's true? I don't know. But I guess Caroline has to prove that it isn't real or something and says it, but only says it four times. And then they both chicken out and they don't say it the fifth time. Yeah. We get some really bad effects of some bees swarming around the city. Um, yeah, the effects are not great in this movie. Yeah. They have paintings that the ones were done by Daniel Robitaille. And oh man, these are real bad. <laughs> like they're very obviously printed on the canvas. Like there's no texture to them whatsoever. <sighs> but they're also just like photographs. <laughs> like you couldn't have just hired a painter. No, that would have taken way too much time and effort. Yeah, uh-huh. Or just, you know, it's 1999. Photoshop existed. Fucking <laughs> put a filter on that shit. <laughs> or at least a better one than the one that they got. We get to find out that she is in L.A. and that it is nearly nearing Day of the Dead, which is so funny because it's like, I get that it's supposed to be L.A. I get that it's supposed to be surrounding the Hispanic heritage. But... Let's be real here. L.A., October, what are more people going to be excited about? Right. Halloween. There's not a single Halloween decoration anywhere. Yeah. And also, she lives in L.A. and doesn't know what Day of the Dead is. (laughs) Come on. Come on. But yeah, so, like, everybody is getting excited for Day of the Dead, and I'm just like... Halloween would be a much bigger deal. Like, Day of the Dead is a big deal. It is, But Halloween... Has a whole, like, anyway. Everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. So she has given all of this uh, artwork over to her boss because she works for, she works at a gallery. But he is making it seem like very, like, Candyman, like, murderer, like, come and see this stuff. these are his paintings he made before he killed people. He was brutally murdered and lynched and... We get a flashback at this point, and we get to see Tony Todd as Robitaille without the hook hand and everything. We also get to see his love, Topless, 
more titties. Yeah, he's having sex for the first time because uh-huh. that's really important when making a horror film. And that's what I mean when I say this just feels like a very run-of-the-mill horror movie. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. Boobs, sex. Yep. A guy that kills people, you know? Goths. <laughs> oh gosh so we're gonna get him lynched again we see him lynched again and it's it's not footage from the first movie it's new footage so we get it from a completely different angle and it's her boss telling the story at the opening night when all these people have shown up for the candy man stuff afterwards she's really mad and she's like no that's not that that's not what happened he was a real person he was a good person stop trying to make him into this ridiculous myth i think it's sad that this wonderful artist's memory is overshadowed by all those stories it's not who daniel robitaille was the soul of a good man is reflected in these paintings that is what's real he should be remembered for what he left behind his art Not the terrible myth that has haunted my family for years. They're like, fine, if you don't believe in it, then go ahead and say his name five times in the mirror. So she does. Yeah, he's like, well, then why not say his name? I don't know, because it's disrespectful to her family and exploitative of her. Like, there's every reason she has to not succumb to this antagonism. Yes. And I think it's funny. I think it's really interesting that not a single one of these movies, because now we finished the whole franchise, so now I can say this. Uh-huh. Not a single one of these movies even attempts to say why they call him the Candyman. Not a single one even tries to even barely make a connection between the fact that he is covered in honey. Nothing. Right. I mean, the first one has a pile of candy with a razor blade in it, which is that's, brought back up for the 2001 version. But that is the... Uh, yes, that's a different person. That's the gang it's guy. It's not Daniel Robitaille. Why did they call Robitaille Candyman? They never once say it. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I assume it's, you know, either sexual or it's about the honey, but mm-hmm. they never actually yeah. put that out there. We also get another reference to the first movie where one of the goths that are here at this showing says to somebody, What's blood for? If not for shedding. Oh. oh. Which is a reference to the opening narration in the first movie where Tony Todd says it. What's blood for? If not for shedding. With my hook for a hand, I'll split you from the groin to your gullet. And I can respect that they were trying to make an homage to the first one. I appreciate that. It's just a little obnoxious. <laughs> it just was not done in a good. Yeah, I yeah. do like. I do like the the line. There's a line somewhere around here where the gallery owner says when he's telling the story. By the time the mob chanted his name for the fifth and final time, Daniel Robitaille was dead. And so at least it gives us a little bit of something as to why you call his name five times and then he shows yes. up. Yeah, but there's someone else in the audience who is passionate about this topic, and when she says Candyman for the fifth time, he shouts something from the audience, and he has a hook in his hand and scares everyone. Do not tip the powers of darkness, for the hour of death is at hand. Get him out of here. He will come for you. He will come for you. I said get him out. He will come for you. He will come for you. 
And it's the guy from Elm Street. This is Jesu, yeah. And of course, you know, it's all set up. He's an actor. He's an actor. Yeah. He was paid to be there by the guy who owns the gallery. But, of course, we all know that she has actually summoned him. And she will have her first encounter with him in a subway. And I gotta say, it's pretty cool. Floating in the swarm of bees is actually pretty cool. And they took it for the fourth one. Yeah, he does it in the fourth one. And he has a new coat. He's wearing all black now instead of brown. Not a fan. (laughs) Where did he get the new coat? (laughs) And why? Because they yeah. needed to be cool and, you know, like that thing we've talked about before were movies that came out around the late 90s, early 2000s, Blair Witch 2, had to have this sort of like, you know, Marilyn Manson edge to it or else you weren't cool. And so, you know, oh, now he's wearing all black and his, we're going to find out his disciples are goths and like, oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, that moment is actually kind of cool where he approaches her in the subway. Yeah, he's floating in a swarm of bees. And even though it doesn't look real, it's a cool concept. She ends up screaming and then waking up on a park bench. But what happens in the meantime? The guy who owns the gallery is hooking up with a chick. More titties. Who's covering her, covering herself in honey because, you know, you do that. Uh-huh. They just, she just happens to have full-on honeycomb and she's dripping honey on herself. I mean, look, I'm a fan of honey. And I'm a fan of introducing food in the bedroom. But sticky? Like, that's going to be so sticky. Yeah, you do that in, like, a shower or something. (laughs) Or at least nearby. Not in the bed. Well, they're not in bed. They're, like, in a room. I don't know where they are. She goes to the bedroom. Does she? Yeah, uh and that's where they're killed by the Candyman. And he... So he ends up stabbing the gallery owner through the back, out the front, with the rounded end of the hook again. And he gives a really weird look on his face right after he kills Miguel. Yeah. It's a very strange look. And he's like watching. Oh, because yeah, because he's watching her be covered by the bees. Yeah, but he has a weird look on his face. Uh I don't know what he's trying to express there. But yeah, like he keeps saying to her, believe, believe, believe. Because it's like what... That's what his whole thing is, is trying to get people to believe in him. And I love that people just refuse to, even though he's killing people. Uh Uh-huh. And so the park bench where Caroline wakes up is right outside Miguel's house or his apartment. And so she goes up there and the doors open and she finds the two of them dead. So the cops show up and we get the two youngest detectives ever. And they're super racist. We've already met them. No, no, first there's the young detectives. Oh, That are completely meaningless until the very, very end of the movie. And then we get the racist cops. Yes, it's... It's very on the mo- on the nose. The the progressive cops are black and a woman, one black man and a woman, and then you've got these two overly racist, like two white old guys, bald guys who just hate anyone of color and think of any woman that they see as a piece of ass. Yeah, just total assholes. I will say, I wrote down here. I really couldn't care less about these racist cops. It's not compelling conflict because it's too lazy and heavy-handed. But at the same time, I get what they're trying to say because it is L.A. Yes. And we're dealing with the Hispanic community, and I, I will also say what they end up doing with, with Wade Williams, the actor, is more compelling than what I thought it was going to be. It got my only genuine laugh in the entire movie was over him when he drops the flowers 
that was actually kind of funny. And it was a weird side of him that I wasn't expecting to see. And then what they do with him at the end is also really interesting. So I will say that about them. But just the fact that they're shitty racist cops, it's like, yeah, no, I get it. And I'm sure you want to make that point. And that's fine. I would agree with you. But this is poor writing. <laughs> like, it's not an excuse for being bad at writing. Yeah. Because you're making a point. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I assume that, yes, there are just plain evil people out there, but just whatever, whatever, whatever. It serves a purpose. I would say the difference between good, compelling writing about racism like this and bad writing, whether it's real or not, is we'll get a moment in the fourth movie where there's an inciting incident where a cop does something really fucking terrible. And you're like, what? Why would he even do that? And But you know what? I believe that it's happened in the past, but you've just really taken me out of the moment because you gave him no justification for behaving the way he does. Then there's a conversation that happens with a different cop in the car that's much, much more believable. And so it's the same sort of scenario, but there is compelling writing to be had. And they sort of drop the ball on these racist cops in this one. But so one of them shows an interest in... Caroline, our main girl. Yeah. Caroline comes home, thinks that her her roommate is being attacked because she's screaming her head off. Oh, but she just got a part. In, in a, a horror movie. Yeah, of course. So she goes and cries in the shower, like you do, apparently. Naked. Yes. Although I don't think we ever actually see her fully nude. She's pretty covered up the way she's sitting. Mm-hmm. But she is naked. But she's remembering her mother who died in the bathtub. And then we get introduced to the idea that it was the Candyman who killed her mother. Right. So this is the argument that I made. Okay, now we find out your mom died the night that she called his name five times. Because she says that. Oh, yeah, she called her name five times and she was dead that night. So you especially had a reason to avoid doing that for yourself. Even if you only think that she actually committed suicide and that there is no such thing as a real Candyman, then you know that the obsession with that myth is what caused her death. Yes. Even more reason to avoid participating in that spectacle back at the gallery. But so meanwhile, they are, the cops are pinning Miguel's murder on the guy from Elm Street. Was David... Yeah, David De La Paz is his name. And because they are following him around, because they're trying to pin this on him, the cop discovers that Jesu and Dierico have started a relationship. Yeah, and that's when we see the flowers drop or whatever. And the reason that's funny is because earlier the co- the his partner partner had said to him, "Oh, what next? You'll be ha- you'll be showing up with roses at her door." Uh-huh. And he did. Yeah. I don't know if it's this moment or a later scene where it's just, like, explicitly romantic. We got this sort of, like, soft, you know, rock, rocky sort of jazz playing and candles lit everywhere. And it's, like, explicitly romantic. I'm not sure weird. when that happens, but yes, it might it be does. the next time. And it's like, well, that was weird. Was this a date? Like, well, why did this happen? <laughs> they yes. just needed things to be sexy. They, are they s- have a Playboy playmate in the lead role. It has to be sexy. Exactly. But so he is going to take her to meet his abuela, whose name is just Abuela. Yes. Who always looks totally pissed off and just over everything. I think she's great. I love Abuela. Yes, Abuela's <laughs> great. But so as they're walking to Abuela's apartment, she notices, just like in all the other Candyman movies, a big portrait of him with his mouth open, right? Yeah. And leads into a door. And he says to her, 
oh, um, your your uh, gallery owner or whatever, mm-hmm. he had that painted there because a little girl was murdered there, and the people around here think of it as evil. So he was doing that to get people to go to the art to promote show. it. Yeah, and my response is. Are those the type of people that are going to come to your art show? <laughs> that know about the little girl being murdered there and thinking this place is evil? Uh-huh. Okay. It's just another way, like, one aspect of every single one of these is that the Candyman myth builds up within a community that's felt hardship. Even though this community has nothing, yes. has no ties to the Candyman yep. History, Right. But I do think it's interesting that there are just certain elements that are always in Candyman. The image of Candyman's mouth wide open. Which is from the original story from Clive Barker. Oh, is it? So, yeah, that's why it keeps getting recorded. Okay, so it's important imagery. I mean, uh mean, it is important imagery, but it's even more important now. Mm -hmm. But also the fact that a child dies. Now, I can't remember if that was in the second one. But the fact that a child is murdered. Mm-hmm. By someone other than the Candyman, yeah, within that vicinity, that area, you know, there's a certain things that pop up in every single yeah. Candyman, sort of recurring Candyman tropes. Mm-hmm. So before we meet Abuela, I don't know if it's like a dream or if it really is happening, but Candyman visits Dierico and he tells, "I have shown you death, yet still you doubt me." In death lies your destiny. Mom? She sees a really creepy version of her dead mom. And I thought for a moment, for Uh a moment, I was like, this is pretty good. And then I realized, oh, he stole it from The Shining. Yes. The naked woman in the bathroom. Walking walking towards towards, her arms open and smiling, this big smile. More titties. Yes. I was like, oh, for a moment. I was like, ooh, good, more good imagery. But no, 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 no. But yeah, using the memory of her mother to sort of convince her to be his next victim. I don't know if that was supposed to be actually happening or if it was just a vision, but like that's when Jesu shows up to take her to his abuela. Yeah. Uh-huh. He also introduces her to his daughter, Christine who we'll see a couple times, who's basically there to be like, don't kill my poppy, over and over. Yeah, she has this moment later on, after Jesu is going to be, David is his name, after he gets kidnapped by the Candyman, where she's like, where's my poppy? Don't let the Candyman take him away. And it's like she knows all this stuff. (laughs) It's, It's a little bit weird. Yes, but so Abuela will smoke a cigar around Love Caroline's it. head. Love it. It's very fun. Uh, some native music is playing in the background, and she speaks to her and she tells her, "You have to fa- you have to face this evil." But then it gets kind of bullshitty, and she's like, "Evil cannot exist without good." And oh so yeah, gotta so get rid of the is, good. And I'm this like, is the "What?" Theme of this movie is that if you want to get rid of evil, you have to get rid of the good as well. And it's like, what point are you trying to make, movie? Exactly. Really, what the movie's trying to do is trying to set up that the way you defeat the Candyman. The, the evil of Daniel Robitaille is to get rid of the good of Daniel Robitaille as well. So it's like, oh, there's, for whatever reason, his his evil spirit is tied to his artwork. <laughs> so they need to set that up somehow. <laughs> but they're making a statement yes. here. Uh, it's not a good one. That 
evil cannot exist without good. And if you want to get rid of evil, you have to get rid of good as well. And it's like, what? <laughs> I've heard, you know, good and evil, there's a balance or whatever. I've never heard the way you conquer evil is by killing the good too. Yeah. Bad writing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Bad writing. She cracks open an egg after she makes Caroline say the name Candyman into, like, into the, to egg. the egg. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> she cracks it and... It's a really interesting visual. It is an interesting visual. When she first cracks it open, there's just the teeniest, tiniest red spot in the middle. Uh-huh, which happens in eggs. Mm-hmm. And, like... And it just starts bleeding. yeah. And then out of the the and it looks really realistic. I don't know if they have like a needle coming up from the bottom of a real egg yolk or what. I don't know. I felt like the yolk would have burst. Yeah, well, just with the blood, I thought it was it was pretty impressive looking. And then a bee comes out of the yolk, mm-hmm. and it's a really interesting visual. But yes, at that point, I was like, oh, that that's not a real egg anymore. Why not just have the stuff? Break at that point. Yeah, I don't know uh-huh. why they didn't Have want it to burst in the. Yeah, uh-huh. why they wanted the the bee to come out of it. Like then at that point, I'm like, well, then it's an, a cooked egg, <laughs> right? Know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Somewhere around here, D- David gets taken hostage, and he basically says his life for yours. He also says something to the effect of, "You need to make this decision." He says, "Quote: I cannot oblige you to die. Why not? Who makes these rules?" Who says she needs to give herself up willingly? Why is that part of the myth? And if it's just the two of you alone and she's going to die either way, how would anybody know? It's If it's just the myth and what's real doesn't matter, which Candyman repeatedly bashes into our head over and over again in every single movie. It's all about the myth. It's all about the myth. It's all about the myth. And what does the reality of the situation matter? Just fucking kill her. But no... We need some sort of compelling emotional turmoil here. She needs to make the decision to be his next victim in order to save David, which is weird because she just fucking met David. I think she'd probably be more willing to sacrifice herself to save Tamara, her roommate. Who he will just kill to set it up. Unceremoniously. To make it it look like she killed him. But then he's like, well, they won't believe you. So then he, like, gives her the keys that she needs to get away. And I'm like, yes. wait, so why did you kill her roommate? She Just gets, to upset her for She her? gets arrested and she gets put in the cop car and the partner to Wade Williams gets killed in actually kind of a cool way he's sitting in the front seat and then there's just blood in the windshield coming from his chest and so then the candy man's hand comes or his claw hand comes out of his hook hand comes out of his chest and it's actually kind of a cool death i would say yeah so what's happening here is he needs her to be arrested and then he lets her go i think the point is is that just like in the original He needs to take everything from her. He needs to make her desperate and have nothing. Her her entire identity, her entire life needs to be taken from her so she's more willing to acquiesce. And we get this scream two moment where she has to climb over the dead body of this detective in the front seat. And he does sort of wake up a little bit. Yes. And then immediately goes after her, but then he dies. Uh But yeah, there's some like. There's a lot of repetition in this movie. Like, the whole speech that he gives about trying to get her to join him, he gives that speech twice. Yeah. He gave it earlier in the film, and now here he is giving it again. Here it is, though. The fact of the matter is, and this is where I wrote down this note, 
is that Tony Todd, as Candyman, is and always will be so good, no matter how bad the movie is. I yeah, have, I mean, I think the acting is good in this movie. I don't think it's bad. Right, but I mean, like, it. you could put him in the shittiest fucking movie ever, and if Tony Todd is playing Candyman, I'll love it. <laughs> not the same with Wishmaster, though. Obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> but also at some point in here, there's a weird, like, she's having sex with Jaysoo, but, like, it turns into Candyman, and that was really weird. Yeah, because, dude, that's your great-great-granddaughter. Yeah. <laughs> There's this weird sort of incestuous vibe that gets introduced with Candyman 2 that wasn't there in Candyman 1. It was, hey, this woman of my desire, this blonde white woman, reminds me of the woman I fell in love with, right? Or she might even be a reincarnation of the woman I fell in love with. But in 2 and 3, these blonde white women are my offspring. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. But so she goes and sees Abuela again, who, you know, tells her more stuff about, about you got to get rid of the good. Um, yeah, without the good, the evil will die. There's more stuff from Christine. Don't let the candy man take away my poppy. Uh-huh. So she, at some point, at, again, she is con- she is confronted by her dead mother, who's trying to get her to, like, join Candyman. And she's like, it's okay, I'm happy. And, like, it's really creepy. She's bleeding and Uh she's smiling. And those moments are creepy and I appreciated those visuals. But then she goes, "I, I, oh, she realizes she needs to destroy the paintings. So the paintings were, were stolen for a while, a while ago. And now somebody has shown up at some bar where the guy that told her about Day of the Dead yes. at the beginning of the film just somehow happens contacts to be, her. He's this like cultural patriarch in the community. And yeah, he contacts her, knowing her phone number, I guess. I don't remember and why. Says, this guy wants to get rid of it because some weird shit's been happening to him. So she shows up at the bar and the guy takes her to where the art is. Oh, but. Turns out it was all a scheme to bring her there and give her to the Candyman. Now, I know it was shitty and it wasn't good, but I liked the concept of a bunch of goths creating a... Fucking dime store goths. Church for Candyman. If not for shedding. Yeah, it's it's so (laughs) bad. It's really, really bad. But I love the idea of it. And it could have been even more... Like, if they had leaned into it, it could have been more fun. Uh But also, I don't know if that works with the Candyman. Like, you know, because Candyman's very serious. So, like, I don't know if this is the route that you should be going down. But it could have been more fun. But it's just all so that he can have more people to kill. Yeah. Because he does, but we don't see it. It all happens off screen. Yeah. We are his congregation. We are his new congregation. Believers of his myth. We will keep the myth alive. So others will believe. Oh, he's so bad. Oh, my God. His acting is so bad. We also we also learn here a little bit something about the power of myth as it relates to Candyman. He mentions how Helen from the first movie, quote unquote, stole his congregation when she revealed in that first movie that there was a real person who was just calling himself Candyman in order to scare the community. This drug dealer guy. Right. And when he beat her up and she identified him in the lineup in the first movie, she gets him arrested. 
And so he lost his congregation of people. Now, the congregation he's talking about are the people that give him power through their belief and fear, not people who worship him. Like, that's a completely different thing. So the idea of worshipful congregants, eh, I don't know if I'm really about that. He's talking about people who believe the UL and are afraid of him, not people who literally worship him. I thought it was fun, though. Yeah, I see where you're what you're going with that, but these goths, I would just prefer they weren't in the movie at all. <laughs> so she she's been hiding while he's been killing all these people, which is why it was off screen. She comes out, she sees the carnage, and, and I guess no, he lets her go. She's tied up with a ball gag. Oh, right. And and he kills everyone there. And then she like wakes up or something or opens her eyes and they're all dead and the ball gag's off her face. She like angrily yells, I hope you burn in hell. And I'm like, I don't know why she's so upset about seeing these people. I guess it's just, you know, a lot of death. Uh I don't fucking know. And then, of course, it wouldn't be complete without an homage to Halloween for some reason. Uh, The guy has to be up in the rafters and falls down. Oh, yeah. And swings as she's leaving. Like in Halloween. Yeah. But so she's like gonna leave and Candyman's like, feel my pain and then opens up and like, I swear every movie the chest gets bigger and bigger. Like they're trying less yeah. and less to make it look any kind of uh-huh. real. Like that, it just looks like he has a giant thing on his chest. It's what gets Tony Todd paid, man. That's the scene in the first movie where he got stung the most. And I forget how much he got, like $1,000 per sting or something like that. <laughs> he gets a nice bonus every time he gets stung. So... Yeah, let's do it. Let's do another chess scene. (laughs) But he's like, behold your end. Uh, But then she destroys his paintings, which causes him to be destroyed. Yeah, there is a moment in between here where she runs through a Day of the Dead celebration and the cops are after her. And Wade Williams, the racist cop, pulls a gun on uh, a Mexican community member when he's looking for her. And... The black detective needs to punch him out, and then he ends up getting fired, and he's super fucking pissed. So at the end of all of this, when she goes to save David, and she just destroys the painting, tries to climb up this hill over and over and over again, (laughs) and it's hilarious. It's very silly. And there's random bones, like skeleton bones everywhere, and it's like, where are the bones from? And she saves David, and then he shows up. To, like, hurt her and tries to hurt her and he has a hook in his hand. You don't understand. I'm going to split you open from groin to gullet. Don't do this. It was the candy man. I'm the candy man. The black detective shows up and shoots him as he's about to kill her. She tells that detective that Kraft, Wade Williams, was the Candyman. And that is not a terrible ending, especially because we were introduced to the idea that revealing that the Candyman myth is just a real human being trying to scare people is what takes away the real Candyman's power. Mm-hmm. And so it like ties back into that. And I thought that that was actually kind of clever. It was a great way to incorporate the racist cop. Mm-hmm. So what they do with the racist cop is good. How they make him racist, really lazy and boring. Mm-hmm. And then we get a really weird, like, transition. Because, okay, so they were telling her earlier in the film that on Day of the Dead, you go and you have a picnic on a on the grave of your loved ones. Yes. You talk to them, you know. But 
the way back. that they transition to this is she's taking a nap. Oh yeah, she's asleep. on the side of the cemetery while they are starting the picnic, and then she will wake up and then go and join them. Yeah, it's this weird sort of picnic. dream sequence type thing. And you're and just like, what? What just happened? And were you, see, you just sleeping in the cemetery? Like, I'm so confused. While you were there with two other people who are unrelated <laughs> to the woman you're visiting. <laughs> The tombstone is your mother's tombstone, and it just says her name, and there's no dates Why or anything else. Why sleep on the side? Why not just yeah, have no, them it's walk up to the so grave together? Stupid. Yes. It is weird. It is very weird and sappy and straight to video, which is what it was. So, you know, oh well. You'll notice a explicit lack of anger over this movie. If you go back and you listen to our episode where we talk about Candyman 2. We are angry that the movie exists. It is a blight upon the name of the original movie. This, I just don't have the energy to hate it as much. And it had some good things. Right, yeah. To add to the story. And this is something I wrote down here, is that so far in all three movies, Candyman never gets either justice or peace. He never gets it. He was an innocent man who was lynched. And yes, he becomes a murderer, but he does that to obtain like some sort of revenge or to increase his stature, become something which was taken, his opportunity to become prolific in his culture was taken away from him. So he's always seeking something, justice or peace or recognition or what have you, and he never gets it in all three movies, which is why I think it's interesting that they dive into that more in the next movie we're going to be talking about. It's sort of like the justice for Candyman and what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's bad, but it's it's not terrible. Right. It is not the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> what do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes, Kelsey? I'm sure it's really bad. I'm going to guess 19 It's seven, Seven. and there is no consensus. Now, that said, we gave the original a 75 and an 80, respectively. It had a 73 Rotten Tomatoes. The sequel had a 28 Rotten Tomatoes score, which was far too high. You gave it a five, and I gave it a 10. I wrote, it's not as infuriating as two, and then I got some quotes from that episode. So fucking... Uh, Like, they didn't think through anything. Everything is wrong in this movie. This movie is so dumb. So dumb. Do not see it. I can't think of a single thing I liked about this movie. Tony Todd. True. And it's only because it's more of what he did in the first one. True. You could watch the first one for that. Garbage. It is garbage. Anything that you could say is good about this came from the first film. Yes, Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think there is kind of nothing redeeming about this movie. Mm -hmm. All the poignant shit from the first one is completely undermined in this one. Yes. The first one had something to say. This one just wanted to make a replica, and I don't know why. And I sincerely hope, since the bar is so low now, that Day of the Dead is better. But if we're being honest, I'm not getting my hopes up. Just, jeez. That's how, like, sort of infuriating it was to watch number two. Whereas, at least in this one, like I said, this one has something to say. Of course, it's really not well written. Yes. <laughs> but it 
it recognizes the racism that happens in LA and it yeah. was trying to say something about that within this in within this mythos that is very related to race. Like I said, I liked that they came up with him floating on the bees. That yeah, was cool. Uh-huh. You can identify things about this movie that you like. Yes. Whereas we could not do that other than, like I said earlier, the always fantastic Tony Todd as Candyman. <laughs> There's nothing about two that we liked. Not mm-hmm. a single thing. Yeah. That's why we gave it such a low score. Bad. This is not nearly as offensive. There are things we can identify that we did like. Poorly written, but like you say, it at least has something to say. So what do you think? What do you what do you think? Obviously, seven is underrated, right? Yes. What would you give it? I will give it a 40. Yeah. I mean, I might go maybe 45. Like I say, it's not a good movie. It's a bad movie, but it's not terrible. No. We tend to stay away from the 40s and 45s, especially 30s. I think the 30s is our biggest gap. Really? In score is the <laughs> 30s. I think this probably fits pretty good there. Don't watch it. You don't need to see it. Just watch the first one. Just watch the first one. Yes. That's all you got to do. Yes. Well, with that said, let's move into the next movie. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Candyman from 2021, directed by Nia DaCosta and written by Jordan Peele, Wynn Rosenfeld, and Nia DaCosta, starring Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Tiona Paris, and Michael Hargrove as the Sherman Fields version of Candyman, which we'll get into what that means a little bit later. He has a lot of screen time in this, and I think should get credit for that. Mm -hmm. What is this Candyman about? So this is a direct sequel to the first Candyman movie, Disregards 2 and 3. And this is about the baby, Anthony, from the first movie. And he is an adult now, and he is an artist, and he has moved to Cabrini Green and is rediscovering the myth of Candyman. Yeah. Interestingly as well, they incorporate that idea from the third movie about how you can diffuse the Candyman's power by taking away the myth. And that all of that is incorporated into this story, but in a way that... It's probably much more relevant to the situation in terms of race. The movie is available to rent for about six bucks, but the cheapest is Redbox at $5. You could buy it for 20 or on Microsoft's store, you can get it for $10. Should people watch this movie? I'm going to say yes, but not because it's a horror movie. Because it's not a horror movie. Sure. I think this is very, very firmly... The second best Candyman movie. Not that that's saying much, because up until this movie, we (laughs) just christened the second best Candyman movie at 40 and 45. (laughs) But yeah, it's a pretty movie. It is so well shot. They get some really great visual stuff going on in this movie. It's a very good drama. Yes, it's a it's a horrific drama movie. Yes. Very much so. There is not one moment in the entire movie where I was actually scared. Yeah, it's, there's no tension. There's the one scene where I was like, ooh, what are we going to do here? Was nothing. I was like, are you kidding me? You finally got my, my horror senses up, and uh-huh. then it just, it was nothing. So there's this aspect to this movie where, like I was saying earlier... Candyman doesn't have as much power because his myth has faded into obscurity. And that's kind of the whole point 
of this movie, this whole running theme of the movie, is forgetting victims of racial violence, right? And so there was that big portion of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was saying their names, which is the names of the victims in several different cases, right? If if a black person dies and there's question about what happened and the people who killed them are going to get off scot-free, we need to be talking about this in terms of who the victims are. They were real people. It's probably about as deep as we're going to get into the politics of it. But that ties in neatly into who Daniel Robitaille was. How, when you give him power, you give it to him by saying his name. Right. So it's there's some compelling stuff going on here through the themes, probably the most since the first movie. Some of it's more heavy handed than other bits, but it is compelling, I would say. And yeah, like Kelsey says, it's basically a drama. They even try some body horror stuff, which I'm not into. (laughs) I could do without that. Don't need the body horror stuff. Nobody enjoyed that. But again, visually, There are some really stellar shots in this movie, like really, really good. Mm -hmm. And I think you should watch it, but it is not as good as the first one. Yeah, yeah. I think that Tiona Paris, uh, Yahya Abdul Mateen, Mm -hmm. who uh, we looked him up and I was like, he was in Us? Yeah. (laughs) He was the dad in the flashbacks in Us. Yes, not the dad. He had like no big role in the movie, but he was in the movie. He's also the new Morpheus, if you saw the fourth Matrix movie, which Which we did not. Which we did not. Yeah. (laughs) So you can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2021's Candyman. What's Candyman? He's the true face of fear. Say his name! If you dare. Candyman. Candyman. Say it five times in a mirror. Candyman. See what happens. Candyman. Candyman. If you ask me, I say you found him. Rated R. Only in theaters August 27th. Okay, Kelsey, get us started. How does Candyman 2021 begin? Well, it starts with the song, because it starts in the 70s. With Candyman. Yes. Yeah. Which is a fabulous song, and it was made popular by Sammy Davis Jr., and that's okay. Of course, it originally came from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes. Which... Kelsey has this really weird relationship with, for those of you that haven't heard, Kelsey used to work at a candy store by the beach, (laughs) and it would play basically Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory all day Not basically, it did. (laughs) It was on a loop, and I had already been an enormous fan of it since my childhood. I love the book, and I love the movie, and then I saw it so many times, like, there was a time in my life where I could recite it line by line but i can't do that anymore Uh (laughs) but we start with some shadow puppets made by a kid who's gonna end up being a villain gonna end up not liking this kid yeah spoilers (laughs) (laughs) this kid is is going to be a villain at which it has a very Candyman 3 vibe where they go back to like You know, his congregation, people doing his work for him. Yes. It's funny, though, that you say that because it reminded me a lot of Halloween, of the new Halloween franchise. 
all these people growing to love this figure and what he represents and wanting him to create carnage and chaos. Mm. So in the new Halloween, not the one that just came out, <laughs> but the one before that, that we liked, uh-huh. where the podcasters come. Oh, yeah. And they uh-huh. want him to do something. And then the doctor releases right. him. Yes, the doctor. Yeah. So he's going to be more like the doctor from Halloween. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's what I was feeling as I was watching this. This is Coleman Domingo as, an, as a kid. So Coleman Domingo is the adult playing William Burke. And these shadow puppets will be used throughout the film to tell stories. Yeah, and I gotta say, fucking loved it. I loved those shadow puppets. They and were I, beautiful and creepy and creative and really, really liked them. And it got me to look up the artist that they based it on. Uh-huh. And she does these really cool murals uh-huh. of these, like... Um, shadow like people and mm-hmm. violence and stuff and i thought it was very good and i thought it was a good way to tell us that story yeah. we're not going to get any flashbacks beyond the 70s back to cabrini green in 1977 where we start this movie everything else further back than that is told in shadow puppet mm-hmm. but so yeah it's 1977 cabrini green and this kid is told to go and do the laundry when he goes down there to do it, there's a large hole in the wall, which was very, it's very similar to what we're used to of there being a big face, face with the mouth, with yeah. the mouth uh-huh. open, but there was no face. Uh-huh. So that was an interesting decision. And it makes sense when you understand what they're going to try and do with the Candyman. And we'll also get a little bit of a taste of the things that are kind of dumb that I don't like about this movie. When... William is going to do the laundry. That's when he's going to have his interaction with the Candyman. And then he grows up and runs a laundromat. Like, (laughs) really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was an odd choice. There are some odd choices sprinkled throughout the There really are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But so he interacts with the Candyman here. And you might be thinking, because I certainly did, that this is a callback to the original film where there was the drug dealer who killed the kid. Yeah, because this is not Tony Todd. Uh, This is Michael Hargrove. And he comes out of this, and he's wearing, like, a brown fur-collared... 70s coat. 70s coat, yeah, like the original Candyman. A little bit lighter, a little bit more yellowish brown. Mm -hmm. Um, And And he's he's coming out with a big smile on his face. And he's got a hook for a hand. Uh Uh-huh. And he has candy in his hand that he's he's trying to hand to to William. Yes. And apparently what was going on at the time is candy with razor blades, which is a real scare that happened, wasn't it in the 90s that that was a scare? Sometime. I mean, it's never really been an actual thing. It's been more a UL than anything. Yes. I don't think there have been any actual cases of it. But anyway, that's supposed to have been really happening at the time. And everybody thought it was this creepy guy mm-hmm. with a hook for a hand that was handing out candy to kids. But what, after the cops come in and murder this man, what we'll find out is that the candy with the razor blades kept happening. So obviously it wasn't him. Yeah. And we should probably say he does have a hook for a hand, but like a prosthetic hook. Yes. Like one a person might actually have. Yes. 
this kid who will end up becoming kind of a villain as an adult, he sees that the Candyman represents police brutality. Yes, because he's going to scream, and later on in the movie we'll see the rest of that flashback where the police just charge right by him and beat Sherman Fields to death. So I think his goal is to create Candyman to, like, get back at the people in power. But that's not what Candyman does. Candyman simply murders anyone who calls his name. It it is regardless of who they are or what they represent. Mm -hmm. So that's why he's a villain, even though he's trying to fight. No, I see. I think, I think this Sherman Fields is just a weirdo handing out candy and that's literally all there is to it. Right. But not from the kid's perspective. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. And it just gets really warped. And that, I think, kind of encapsulates the biggest problem for this film. Really? Okay, what do you think that is? Whose side are you on when you see this? You're, of course, on the side of, oh, my God, those cops shouldn't have killed that guy, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you understand why he would want to get back at them. But then it's like... It warps into, no, it has nothing to do with that. So, he just kills anyone who ki- who calls his name. I agree. That's probably the biggest problem with the Candyman franchise in general, is you get this man that was wronged greatly, you know, just like horrible, horrible things done to him in Daniel Robitaille, right? And then he gets his revenge by killing poor black people? Yeah. Like... That's very strange. Right. But I think it's this movie is now trying to reframe that as Candyman is more representative of the pain that black communities go through when they deal with racism. Right. And the idea is we should confront that. Yeah. But here the idea is, no, we need to squash it because if we don't, innocent people die. Yeah. Do you see how things got warped there? And yeah, and by the end of the movie, he's going to be like a superhero sort of like killing racist white cops. And that's not what Candyman is. But I mean, I don't know. Does that fix the problem with Candyman if he's killing the right people? Well, I think ultimately what it comes down to is we need to forget about the idea of Candyman. Yes, 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 yes. And we need to focus on the actual people which is that what died Caroline in his was, name. Which is what Caroline was saying in part three. Right. But they died in his name. Yeah, because, because he killed he them. possessed them <laughs> yeah. to murder innocent people. Do you see how things got warped here? After their death. We're going to talk one of the things that... that this movie does is that the Candyman story keeps going because every new generation or whatever, some poor black man is killed in some racist way, then becomes the new Candyman myth because the Candyman myth keeps getting shut down and people forget about it until some new Candyman can take his place. And so there are going to be several men that die, including one young boy, that die and become the new Candyman myth, which is why, like, for the first half of the movie or so, you're like, are they rewriting the Candyman story? Yeah, for They're the not. first half of the film, you are wondering, are they just going to get rid of the Robitaille situation? Yeah, Candyman is just Sherman Fields. Mm-hmm, but they're not. 
They're, They're going to bring that back later. And I did think that was, I thought it was well done. Yeah. The only problem is you're going to have fans of the franchise that are going to be sitting there the first half of the film wondering what's going on. And I think that it should have been a little bit more interlaced throughout so that you weren't wondering if they were just going to get rid of it completely. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Okay. <laughs> I see what you're saying. I do. I'm just, eh, I don't care. I think if you, I think it's well done in the end. You just got to sit through the movie and you'll get your answer. You know what I mean? Like the movie will tell you directly. Right. But I wish that I hadn't been wondering about that the whole sure. time. Yeah. I wish I could have. It might have just... put you in a bad mood early on because what are you doing to the story of Candyman? Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Also, an interesting thing here is this is 1977, right? So it takes place before the events of Candyman 1. So why is everyone talking about the the Daniel Robitaille Candyman? Why is he the one that shows up in the first movie if by the 70s everyone had already forgotten about him? Now, they do try to explain why people forgot about Daniel Robitaille, which is good. But all the other Candymen happen before that. So, like, there's a little overlap in their storylines that doesn't make very much sense. Mm-hmm. Kind of a problem. But I love the general concept. You know what I mean? It's just the logistics of it don't really work out. And so it's like, huh. But that's it. Mm. So cut to 2019. 42 years later, we meet our main character. This is Yahya Abdul-Mateen. Playing Anthony McCoy. Anthony. Same name as the baby from the original film. Yes, but I don't think they're really, they're not like pointing that out or anything. They're not even dropping any hints, but it's the sort of thing where you watch the movie having seen the first one. And I told you, like I turned to you in the movie and I'm like, well, here's what I think they're going to do. He's either that kid or he's going to meet that kid in his research. One of the two things is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, he is the kid from the first movie. Not the young kid who tells her the story, but the baby who was in the fire. Yes. And he is in a relationship with... Tiona Paris, playing Brianna Cartwright. We know her from... WandaVision. WandaVision. Mm-hmm. And her brother... Troy Cartwright, played by Nathan Stewart Jarrett. And his boyfriend, Grady Greenberg, played by Kyle Kaminsky. And that is... An homage to Clive Barker. Yeah, because Clive Barker is gay. Right. Which feels like a much better tribute to Clive Barker. Than the than guy the, who gets his name? Than yeah. the guy who gets named Clive. <laughs> that was really shitty. But they anyway. couldn't have named Grady, the character right. Grady, Clive. <laughs> right. The fuck? Um, but so, they are coming over for dinner mm-hmm. at Brianna and Anthony's home. Brianna is the one bringing home the bacon. Yeah. Because her boyfriend is supposed to be this great artist, but he hasn't had a big piece in a very long time. A couple years, yeah. And she's an art dealer, which is how they met. And she sold his original artwork, which was a big thing in the Chicago art scene. One thing that you need to know, and that the movie talks about, is that Cabrini Green... What we know Cabrini Green as from the 70s and even the 90s was torn down and replaced by housing that where they were inviting hipsters to come live, basically, or the art community, to gentrify the community. Didn't matter if you were white or black, although Anthony says at one point they'd prefer, they'd white. prefer if you were white. But he is an artist participating in that 
gentrification. What's it called now? Cabrini Green. It was a project, it's affordable housing that had a particularly bad reputation. You would never know. Yeah, because they tore it down and gentrified the shit out of it. Translation, white people built the ghetto and then erased it when they realized they built the ghetto. Ooh, no offense. None taken. They took the opportunity to make it livable. I could've got you a better conversion. They kept telling people they were gonna make it better, moving them from place to place, but really they were just tearing it down so they could develop everything around it. Oh, like here. I'm sure he has a reason for why he's not doing anything Well, I think that's part of the reason why he feels compelled to tell this story Mm. is because he also feels partly responsible for erasing those communities. Mm -hmm. The city cuts off a community and waits for it to die. Then they invite developers in and say, hey, you artists, you young people, you white, preferably or only, please come to the hood, it's cheap. And if you stick it out for a couple of years, we'll bring you a Whole Foods. But so, his girlfriend's brother decides on a whim to tell a ghost story, which just never feels, never feels natural. I'm sorry. Yeah. It doesn't matter how natural you try to make it. Who sits around and tells ghost stories? Yes. Unless you are drunk or stoned. No. And you're in like the woods or something. Yes, you need that context. You need to be on a trip or something. (laughs) Have you ever just been at a casual dinner party at somebody's apartment and been like, ooh, I know a ghost story? (laughs) No, never. You guys want to hear a scary story? No. Too bad. I mean, here's the thing. He is telling it about Cabrini Green. Which and is they where are they in are. Cabrini Green, yes. <laughs> but it still feels awkward. <laughs> anyway, so he is going to tell the story of Helen Lyle. Helen Lyle, who has taken on the Candyman story here. Yeah. Which so I thought the, was interesting. I, it really is. The legend that he tells is that Helen Lyle, this white woman, who was taking pictures in Cabrini Green, went crazy, killed everyone and the dog. dog. (laughs) Kidnapped. Tried to kill a baby. Kidnapped the baby, tried to sacrifice him in their annual bonfire, and then when the kid was saved, she walked into the fire herself to die. Now, I thought it was hilarious because he tells the story about how, okay, she killed the dog, which just shocks the hell out of Anthony, right? Uh Immediately after, he says, she then went outside in the snow to make to make blood angels. Blood angels, oh yeah. Right? Uh-huh. So then I'm sitting there and I've seen the original film and I know what they're talking about. And I'm like, the snow angel thing didn't fucking happen. And then <laughs> Anthony is like, there's no way. And I'm thinking he's going to say the blood angels. And then he goes, there's no way she killed a dog. <laughs> and I'm like... But it's funny because the yes. dog did die. But it, it is it is very clear that what they're doing here is they're saying that the history changes in the telling and things get embellished and things get removed and people believe things that didn't happen and they don't believe things that did happen. 100% you are correct. They did an excellent job with this. Uh-huh. Except that, why the fuck would he know this story? Right. He's not the one living in Cabrini Green. The only people (laughs) who would know this story were the people who lived there in the 90s. No, but the point is, is that, and we're going to find out later, that they purposefully took Candyman out of that story and made Helen Lyle the cultural sacrifice so as to suppress the Candyman myth. But the other problem is no one 
tells the story. They all agreed not to, except for this one motherfucker. Right, right, right. They well, all agreed not to tell the story from the story they tell. Are you trying to tell me that her brother just randomly decided to get his laundry done at the same laundry no, place no, no. and met this guy and heard the story? No, what Which, I'm, by the way, wouldn't be the story he would have told him anyway. No, what, I, what I'm telling you is that they agreed not to tell the real story. So they had to tell a story, which is why when Anthony starts doing the research later, he finds more information about Helen Lyle and it's wrong information. Okay. That's the point. Like the the story that was disseminated to the world left out the Candyman part. And unfortunately, Helen Lyle needed to take the fall for that. If you remember at the end of the movie, the entire community showed up at her funeral when no one else did, except for her husband and his new girlfriend. Uh, and, and the dude with long hair from the second movie. They it all showed up to sort of, like, honor her. And then they dropped the hook hand. And then she got revived as a new Candyman. Yep. And no movie... <laughs> Four movies in this franchise, that's introduced in the first, none of the others mention that she becomes a new Candyman. Interesting. Because nobody's afraid of Helen Lyle. No, nobody's afraid of Helen Lyle. (laughs) Okay, so next day. After hearing this story, he is inspired to go walk around Cabrini Green and take pictures because he's, you know, he's going to do some sort of art piece about Cabrini Green. While he is out and about taking pictures, he gets stung by a bee, and this is going to be the start of the body horror shit. He gets stung in his hand, and he gets really fucking infected. And every time a movie does this, I'm like, just go to the fucking hospital! Well, he does go to the hospital. He does. And I then know. Nothing happens. When I know. He's there. He does Except go to that the he hospital. He finds out he, he was learns. born in Cabrini Green. He learns that. That's the only thing. And they don't. They don't tell it. Like they wrap his hand. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. No. Totally. But at least he did go to the hospital because that is such a tired trope of people that are like they're falling apart and they're so panicky that anyone might find out that they don't even try to get help from strangers who have no idea who they are. Here's my issue. Okay. Yes, it's gross what they do, but it also doesn't look real. Did you feel that way? No, I think when his, um, yeah, I mean, it does feel a little makeup-y. It felt but very makeup There's a little pussiness to it, which I liked. And it when is his, nasty, but it is When his fingernail makeup. comes off, I that that was a, I was like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I think he sells it really well when his fingernail comes off. Yeah. I think he does a good job of that. I just felt like really on his face, I was like, is that a panel? That looks like a panel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think... The thing about Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is I think he's an okay actor. There are times when I really, really like him in this role. And there are other times when I'm like, what was that choice? (laughs) I thought he did a great job. We haven't seen The Matrix, so we don't know how he does as the new Morpheus. But but I thought he did a great job. Yeah, uh uh-huh. I don't think it's on him to sell the makeup. I think it's on the makeup You're artist. Right. You're right. But no, I'm saying in addition to that, <laughs> there are some times when I'm like, no, that was magical. And then there are other times when I was like, well, that's a weird choice. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only part in the film that I started to feel tension. When William he's, Burke shows up? He's walking around and for some reason he's like in the dark and he's starting to get himself scared. He's spooking himself out. And you think something's going to happen. And I was like getting all tense. Nothing happens. Uh-huh. And we never get back to that tension. I never see. So that's back. your big complaint about this movie is that tension 
which was so successful then. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I, I'm trying to think back to moments where I was tense in the movie, and I think the only other time is the sort of balletic mirror scene that we get later on in the movie has a little bit of tension to it. But yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's something this movie is sorely lacking, is any sort of tension. Mm-hmm. Because everything else is kind of predictable. You you know that when he starts going crazy and his girlfriend finds the pictures that she's going to flip out. You know that nobody's going to believe that he didn't kill people. You know that, like, all these things you know that are going to happen. And so you're not surprised and you're not tense. And that's a good point. Well, here's the thing. Because I, I don't think she want the director, I don't think she wants you to be afraid of him. And I'm like, okay, I yeah, he's get... He's a little bit sympathetic. I get what you're going for, uh-huh. but then it's not a horror movie. Uh-huh. And if... Then that, that don't, don't say it's a horror movie. I disagree. I think it could still be a horror movie. It's just not a scary horror movie. And that's the weird thing that we've dealt with a lot on this show, is that not every horror movie is scary. Sometimes that's fine. Other times, it's not. I'm fine with watching a drama. But tell me it's a drama. Ah, there's murders and shit. People are floating. There's an invisible man killing people. It's definitely a horror movie. It's just not very scary. Mm-hmm. Like I would say, you know, Jurassic Park, for instance, right? I would say that that you could argue that it is a horror movie. I think it's less a horror movie and more scary. I think that fear and horror are, in, in terms of film are definitely connected, definitely, definitely. But I don't think they're intrinsically connected. I think you can be more horrific, but not as scary and vice versa. Well, I'm here for the scares. Yeah. (laughs) Myself. I just, I really thought he sold, you know, you know when it's you. You know that there's nothing there. You're in a room. It's pitch black. You know there's nothing there. But you're scared anyway. Mm-hmm. And I thought he did a very good job of that. I think he does. He might see the Candyman in a mirror somewhere briefly and then look around and nobody's there. Well, nothing happens. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's a big letdown. But I mean, that's a big part of this version of Candyman is that he's not physically present. He's in the mirrors. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is where he runs into the the guy who r- runs the laundromat. Laundromat William Burke, yeah, yes, and he will tell the story of Helen Lyle and Sherman Fields because yes. he's the one that saw it. This is where we get the rest of that story after he screamed what happened to Sherman Fields when he got beaten to death. You're right because he he first asks him about Helen Lyle and he tells him. She came looking for Candyman, and I'm pretty sure she found him. Uh-huh. It makes you think about what can make someone just snap like that. Tell him I was out here looking for Candyman. You ask me, I say she found him. And then he tells the story of Sherman, which is where it changes from Candyman to Sherman. And that's why we don't see Tony Todd. Yeah. He will come home. And his girlfriend is pissed because apparently they had dinner with his mother that night and he forgot and didn't show up. Uh Uh-huh. And I thought- Such a minor moment, too. Like, it's so weird how just, like, that's a huge deal. You just don't show up for dinner with your mother and your (laughs) girlfriend does. Right. And they're just like, how was it? Oh, she was crazy as usual or whatever. And then, like, that's it. Right, but- there are these hints about yes. his mother. They have a strained relationship. Yes. What's up? You forgot your mother's. 
I'm sorry. Will you please call that woman? Tomorrow. I want to... You said that yesterday, and it's nice that she wants to spend time with you. Not everyone has that. Is she okay? She implied that I give you money so you won't visit her. So, oh, she's about the same. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> it's great. I want to show you something. And he tells her, well, I feel really connected to this story of Candyman and Cabrini Green, and I know exactly what I should be doing. And he's like, I thought it would be fun if we summoned him. And Brianna's like, what the fuck? No, I don't want to do that. And he does it anyway, because he's a jerk. Does he get through all five? I don't remember if he does here or not. Yeah, he does. So I thought that we could. <laughs> what did you think? Summon him. <laughs> Hell no. No. Candyman. Anthony. Candyman. Anthony, no. Candyman. Stop. Stop it. Candyman. Stop it. Okay. You better not do okay, that. Okay, okay, okay. Candyman. Can you play too ah. much? You be no, no, stop, stop. And that is the, when we get to see the next night or whenever, it's the gallery showing. Mm -hmm. And he has done an installation and it looks real dumb on the outside. It looks like a medicine cabinet. And, and that's the idea. Now, I get that it is a callback to the original film. But if you were going to do an art installation, I don't think you would do that. But whatever. He, You open it up and inside. And they don't really show you, you a lot of it. You don't get a very good look at it. But you did earlier see mm -hmm. um, an image, which we I guess we should talk about. He does an image of a man being beaten to death, which is, you know, like Candyman or like Sherman. And Brianna sees it. And when she sees it, she says... It's a pretty literal approach. Not much room for viewer interpretation, you know, moving from the symbolism of violence to the actual depiction of it. Okay, but how was it hitting you? It's painful. She's talking about the movie. She's talking about the movie. Yes, and I guess, you know, that's what the movie's going for. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. it say our names. It's very, uh -huh. it was in the midst of Black Lives Matter. I mean, Black Lives Matter is still happening, and it should be. And say the names of the people who were killed. And I totally understand that connection, and it's a good connection. It just gets warped yeah. when suddenly those people are killing people. Right. What? <laughs> but yeah, anyway. totally. She is, she is sort of saying what Kelsey is saying is it's not fear, it's pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unintentionally, he is spreading the myth, which will get a lot of innocent people killed. Yes. He also tries to approach Finley Stevens, who is an art critic, to talk about his work. And she's talking about it like he's not the artist. I don't know if she knows he's the artist or not. Oh, no, she knows. I, I think she, it wouldn't matter to her, is my yeah. point. Where she's just like, Nah, it's pretentious, you know, basically. what she, she has a lot of things to say, but she's basically saying it's trite and pretentious. And she doesn't care until it's involved with a murder. Right. And somebody else is going to say that, too. Somebody else says that, oh, no, it's, it's great. I really like that. This guy who shows up for one fucking scene, Carl Clemens Hopkins, playing this character named Jameson, shows up for one fucking scene to tell him that he really liked his art piece. And where did you get? those paintings from a dollar store or something when the paintings inside were actually painted by Anthony in earnest. Mm -hmm. And so 
he he's already drunk by this point at the end of the night and he tells him off. Yeah, and it's such a weird scene. And the gallery owner. I love interventionist strategy. A conventional painting is such a drag. I love that you hid those fucking things in a storage room with the lights out. So smart. Is all your work based on found material? I mean, where'd you even find those paintings? They're <laughs> store in the desert. <laughs> I found them in the studio where I painted them. <laughs> you goofy ass fuck. <laughs> And you, you fucking hyenas. Oh, oh hey, what the let's, fuck? Let's go, Clive. <laughs> Anthony, you think you'd even be here if it wasn't for her? Shouldn't you be somewhere stocking up on morning after pills to accommodate your summer intern program? That's not spontaneous. Yeah, yeah, you had that one in the bank. Yeah, I did, bitch. Yes, it feels very out of place. I am certain that there was another scene with that guy that Positive. got cut Positive. to make it shorter, which it didn't need to be. It's it, only an hour and a half. It's a really short movie. It should have been longer. Well, okay, I'm fine with the length. I like it when movies are fast, but I don't like it when you cut out a scene and that makes another scene very strange. That's and my point. I don't think that it feels too short. It feels incomplete. Yes, it does. It feels like they were cutting things out that they shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fine. As an audience member, I can totally understand. Okay, obviously they know this person. Obviously he, they have a history. Like I can see all that from myself. And I appreciate that they understand that their audience isn't, isn't made up of idiots, but it does feel awkward and misplaced. Do you notice though that we have a female lead who deals in art and a gallery owner who's a dickhead? To her, and like, oh, this is the third movie. (laughs) Well, it's funny that you say that, Chris, because I'm about to say something that was a big point of contention while we were watching the film, even though I feel very confident in what I'm about to say. Okay. This movie reminded me a lot of the movie Rings. Right. Because... This was a point of contention. Rings is, it's really bad. Don't see it. We stopped watching it. Yeah, it, it was, was one of the so rare bad. movies where we're just like, "Are we done with the movie?" Yeah, we're done with the movie, and we turned it off. But it's an art installation which spreads the myth of the ring, and if you don't keep spreading it, then those people die. Now I understand that that part is different than this, mm-hmm. but it's an art installation that spreads the myth that kills people. Right, and so I, I. Totally understand at that level. But if you inspect it any further, it falls apart. I think this is more Freddy Krueger. Because with Freddy Krueger, if you go to uh, Freddy versus Jason, (laughs) Freddy uses Jason to kill people in his name so people can start believing in him again, which gives him power. And that's what's happening here is Candyman is going to get stronger the more his name gets resurrected. And that's where I go. Now, I see what you're saying. It's an art installation. They're putting on some hippie art thing or whatever, and it's going to get people killed. But I see that as more of like a virus spreading in, in, in that form. But the more it spreads, the less you get hurt by it, which is weird. This is the opposite. The more it spreads, the more people get hurt. Yes. If you don't know, the story in Rings is that you can watch the video from the ring online and get the thrill and you get the call that says seven days or whatever. And then the people that run that website will deliver the the video to another person who's willing to see it for you in your name. Is that how it works? 
if I remember I correctly. Thought, I thought it was just. The whole point is people are volunteering. I thought it was just the people who are in charge uh -huh. know that and understand that. The people they're spreading it to do not. So they're watching it and then dying. No. Because they don't know to spread it to the next person. No, I think it's the exact opposite. I think they know exactly what's going on and they have a system set up to where there will be another person to watch it. It's almost like a pyramid scheme, but of death. You know, where... I mean, I don't remember why we, a Ponzi scheme, a Ponzi scheme of this. death. It's we've a Ponzi not, scheme of death. We've not seen this. We didn't even finish it. So. <laughs> no, we didn't. Yeah. So we may be way, way wrong. We just did not care. It was such a bad movie. Anyway, we're not talking about rings. We're talking about Candyman. So that night at the gallery, everyone has gone home and it's just the gallery owner and his intern, intern. who he sleeps with, which they made a big joke about earlier. How he so. sleeps with every intern or whatever. Yeah. So. She's got a joint oh, division. Oh, this is Clive, by the way. Yeah, a guy you absolutely <laughs> hate is named Clive, which was irritating. So she's got a Joy Division song on. And, the, and she's I mean, wearing a Joy, a Joy Division, Division shirt, shirt yeah, uh -huh. on. And at one point she says, love will tear us apart. <laughs> and the guy goes, Jesus, we get it. You love Joy Division, which was a good line. Yes, it was funny. He is funny, but then you use his humor in a not good place. Well, he's also taking this opportunity to badmouth Brianna, whom we like. Well, he's mad at her for forcing him to include her boyfriend's art, which, which he didn't like. Yeah, uh-huh. So I don't know that he's really bad-mouthing her. He's just Well, he's like, no, her. she's fired, and she lost her job, and she has her boyfriend to thank, or whatever. <sighs> Shoehorning her boyfriend into my summer show was her first mistake. Only mistake. <sighs> she's done, and she has no one to blame but herself. Don't mix curation with who you're fucking. <laughs> Love will tear us apart. Jesus, Jer, could we get it? You like Joy Division. Yeah, no, he was, he's, he's a total dick about it. Well, I so, get why he's upset, but he's a dick about it. But so they're talking trash about this installation, and then she's like, well, why don't we do it? Because, you know, mm. that would be fun to say the name out loud, even though we don't like the installation. Well, she's got this whole industrial goth thing going for her. That's like her thing. She has a little belt thing that she attaches to him so they can be connected together, and they're going to say Candyman in the mirror five times. And this is one of the best murder scenes in the entire franchise. I Kelsey, I don't think, feels strongly about this either way. But I do. I think him not, him being invisible in the real world, but visible in the mirror is really, really good. I, I know mean, it's not the first time that, that a movie's done this. Yeah, we've seen that before. Yeah, but I think as it relates to Candyman, it is apt, especially when they're talking about how he's just gaining power, right? So while he's sort of powerless and his myth kind of isn't out there and nobody's talking about him, because if you remember all the way back to the first one, really he wants people to talk about them. When he's going to take Helen Lyle, he's like, people will talk about us forever or whatever, you know? So that's what he's into. And since nobody's talking about him, since they suppressed his myth as much as possible... He's just living in the mirror. And then when Anthony starts digging up that pain, right, then it starts to get more power. He's not powerful enough to walk around in the real world, but now he's powerful enough to interact with it. And I, I like that. I think that that's really, really compelling stuff. And then to see him, like, slice through the projector and then, like, l grab him by his ankle as he pulls him away from the front door. Like, all of that stuff I thought was really fucking killer. And it's one of my favorite death scenes in the, in this, in the franchise. 
it, again, it's part of the problem that I've kind of had with a lot of these Candyman movies is he just kind of decides who he wants to kill. Yes, yes. It doesn't have anything to do with who said the name. Exactly. It's whoever he wants to kill. And <laughs> as once long as someone has called him, he can kill whoever he feels like. Yeah. But then there are other times when he doesn't kill whoever he feels like. And you're like, oh, I guess it's because she was black he didn't kill right. her? No, he picks people, right? So he picked Helen Lyle in the first movie. And he picked his great-granddaughter in the second movie. And he picked his great-great-granddaughter in the third movie. And then he also picks people to hold his sacrifice in case he can't get that person and hopefully trying to convince them, like in the first and third movie, right? <laughs> and so there are certain weird things about that. And he'll just show up after he's been called one time, right? So he'll, they'll say his name five times and he can just show up whenever now. <laughs> but then he also shows up when people say his name five times. But he'll kill whoever else is in the room, but except we have for a, when he doesn't want to. We have a gremlin midnight problem, which what isn't after midnight, right? So- after somebody says his name five times, when is he not able to just appear whenever he wants anymore? <laughs> because he does appear when people haven't said his name after his name has been said five times by somebody. Yeah. But surely somebody else prior to that said his name five times. So why isn't he just out roaming the streets, killing whoever he wants? Now, again, that is not a new problem for this it film. Isn't. It is a problem with the franchise. But it 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 really stands out a lot in this one. Yeah. Because here, okay, she called him, and he shows up, and he kills both of them. Okay, all right, that's what you're going to go for. But, but he then didn't later, kill Anthony and Brianna when right, he called right, his name, because right. he picked Anthony. Right. <laughs> but then later in the bathroom scene, which is completely unnecessary. This is feels, William, it, William's older sister when he was a kid. No, 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 no. I mean the bathroom scene with the teenage girls. Oh, yeah. The completely uh -huh. unnecessary scene that was just for the trailer, just like in the third movie. The b bathroom scene in the beginning, yes. totally unnecessary, totally for the trailer. In that scene, he shows up, kills all the girls, but there's another girl who's just sitting there and he's like, not going to kill you. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> for no reason. Like, it's almost like he's making value judgments, but- but not sometimes. He's not explicit about what those values are. <laughs> yes. And it's really inconsistent. Yeah. And I think, I mean, as for the purposes of this movie, yeah, he didn't kill the black girl who everyone picks on, right? So, okay, maybe he doesn't want to kill that girl or whatever. But, like, he is brutal to these teenage girls who did nothing. <laughs> and then William, when his... Well, no, they did make fun of her. They did. But William, when his sister does it we get a flashback and we find out that his sister and her friend call his name five times he brutally murders them and they're young black girls yeah like yeah so it's like he is really really inconsistent with his sort of value judgments but that they he has dared here. call his name right but then he kills people that don't call his name so it's, <laughs> yeah anyway and do doesn't kill people that do and it's really really it's probably the biggest consistent problem throughout the franchise is the Candyman's inconsistency. Yes. But so there is a Jurassic Park joke in here, which just- Oh, must felt, go faster, must, yeah, must go, go faster. faster. I was like, okay, I love What's-His-Name in Jurassic Park. I don't like this guy. Jeff Goldblum, Why are you yeah. giving him Jeff Goldblum's joke here? And why are you ruining any kind of tension that you had built up? And who is he talking to? Himself? Yes, to himself. He's talking to himself because she's already dead. He's trying to get her right. unlocked from his belt. Must go faster. 
Oh, you know what would be really silly here is if I made a Jurassic Park reference? It's very strange. That's what we mean when we say odd choices sprinkled throughout. Yeah. After that, we cut back to Brianna and Anthony. Anthony and Troy, Brianna's brother, remember. So we find out that she saw her father commit suicide, and he was also a painter, and that is why she kind of has this need to help struggling black painters. It also explains why she reacts so poorly to the hint that her artist boyfriend might be losing his mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because that's the same thing that happened to her father. Oh, we missed one of the best lines in the entire movie. When Troy and Grady are at the gallery, Grady suggests that they do the thing and say his name five times. And Troy says, yeah, no, black people don't need to be summoning shit. This isn't the bayou, it's Chicago. <laughs> Should try it. What? Summon the candy man. Uh, yeah, no. Black people don't need to be summoning shit. Oh, come on, that is nonsense. This isn't the bayou. Chicago, that's white people shit. Mmm. Candy man. Candy man. Zip it, A stop. <laughs> Which is funny because the second Candy Man movie was in Louisiana. <laughs> yes, yes. But also, black people don't need to be summoning shit. <laughs> <laughs> And then she ends up having a dream about the Candyman, which causes her to wake up, and she goes looking for her boyfriend, Anthony. She finds him in the bathroom, and he is acting very strangely, and he says he's had a bad dream, too. And she's like, well, what did you dream about? And instead of responding to her, he just slowly closes the door and pushes her out. I think he says he'll be out in a minute or something like that. She just says nothing. She doesn't respond. Right. She doesn't think that's weird. She is worried or concerned. I like nothing happens. You and I'm like, this why a- did we include this scene? There is a there is a transition that happens throughout this movie where we go from Anthony being the main character, and the more he and this is a unique thing to this movie, even though it happens at the end of the first one, where he starts to become Candyman. Uh, like he's he's being prepped to be the new tragedy that that refreshes the Candyman mythos, right? And the more Candyman he becomes, the less he becomes our protagonist, and the movie starts focusing more on Brianna. And it's not a subtle shift when it becomes Brianna's movie. It kind of it's like a switch that turns. And I think this would have been a perfect opportunity to make that transition more subtle if we saw what was going on with her on the other side of that door and how she was responding to him doing that. Yeah, but we don't. We yeah, don't nothing. get to see anything and she doesn't bring it up again uh-huh. and and you're like, "Why did this scene happen? It's so strange. Mm-hmm. He acts so bizarrely. If you ever did that, it would be a very strange conversation afterwards." <laughs> And nothing. So you're just like, why did that happen? And and nothing happens. And then the next day, he goes into an all-mirror elevator. Where is he again? Why is he in an all-mirror elevator? Is this, he's, because, okay, so they find out that the gallery owner and his intern died. And he's excited because they died in front of an art piece by local artist, Anthony McCoy. And he starts smiling and they're all looking at him. And he's like, they said my name. They're like, uh, that's not the point. And it's really fucking weird that you're happy about that. 
that is kind of what's going to get us to this next piece where he ends up talking to yes. the art critic again, Finley Stevens, the one who badmouthed him. She wants to know everything about him and his artwork because now there's like intrigue surrounding it. Right. But that happens after he he has a conversation with his girlfriend. So the mirrored elevator can't be taking him to her apartment because he has to have a conversation with his girlfriend where she tells him, hey, you're coming to this dinner tonight. Don't fuck this up. And he's like, I'm fine. I'm not going to do anything Oh, yeah. Weird. I didn't take any notes for the dinner, but yeah. I know and she's just about. like, for me, Anthony, right, yeah. don't fuck it up for me, you yeah. fucking self-centered asshole. But anyway. Totally, yeah. But so the mel- the elevator scene happens before that conversation. So it's kind of a cool scene. It's definitely a trailer scene, but it's cool. I actually really liked it. The way he looks up at the mirror above him and he sees looking back down at him from above the reflection of himself. But instead, it's Sherman Fields, Candyman. And a piece of candy drops from the ceiling. Yeah, and he's freaked out and he, and he falls into a corner and then the doors open up and there are a bunch of kids out there. And they're like, what the fuck is going on with this guy? <sighs> oh, right. He's at the library, the, the school oh, library. Oh, yes, because there's a white lady who thinks he's hot. Getting all the information about Helm Lyle. He is hot, by the way. Like, man, you see him topless and yes. dude is ripped. Yes, he's very nice Jesus. Looking. Yeah, he gets all the information about Helen Lyle. That's right. And we get a recording of Helen Lyle. Of Helen Lyle. And that actually is Virginia Madsen, who came back as a cameo just in her voice. We see her pictures back from the 90s, but we get her voice today narrating, talking about what she thinks about the Candyman myth. Some of the things that have happened to Cabrini over the years, violence just so extreme, so bizarre. It's almost as if violence became the ritual. The worst part, the residents are afraid to call the police. A code of honor, perhaps. Fear of the police themselves. The easy answer is always Candyman did it. The summoning game itself could be connected. I mean, it's clear that no one person makes this up. This grew from the community's collective subconscious. A survival tool evolved from the need to protect itself and its children from the horrors of the community. Bernadette and I tried the summoning. It's amazing how effective it can be. The suggestion that you're being followed or stalked by something lurking in your own reflection. But I get it. Alluring about the promise of seeing a ghost. But so before he goes to that dinner, he's gonna meet up with as we said, the art critic who originally hated it and now likes it because his name was mentioned in Cahoots with a Murder. So he takes this opportunity to throw what she said back in her face and be like, you got, you're the ones that cut off the community. You're the ones that mm-hmm. ruined it for the people that lived in Cabrini Green. Don't fucking put that shit on me. And that's when we get the uh, whole like, and then after you guys tear it down, you want everyone to come in and gentrify it. Yeah. But so... He will, out of, I think, kind of anger, dare her to do it. And she excuses herself to go to the restroom, and she does say his name. So we don't see that. We got to assume that that's the case. Right. Because he's looking in a mirror in the hallway, and he sees in place of him again, 
And this was a cool shot. Sherman Fields, yeah. It's a very cool shot of him recognizing that it's no longer him in the mirror. It is now Candyman. And he does the scared look on his face. And it's really well it's done. It's the one you get on like posters. And it'll probably be the image for this episode on our website. It is well done. It's interesting sort of body movements. It's not very natural. It's a little bit of, it has, like I say, it has the sort of balletic feel to it. And I think that's fine. I think that's I think very really compelling. Well done. Yeah, exactly. I really, really actually like it quite a bit. Uh, but it's not scary, but it does communicate uh, Anthony's confusion and terror. And I really love the sound that they used to to have bees hitting the inside of the mirror. Oh, yeah. There's a couple moments where bees will travel through mirrors. But, like, at this point, they can't get through. And the thunk sound is so real. In another life, I would have been a Foley artist. This is very cool. That's one of the things I always wanted to be as a kid was a Foley artist. I found out that was a job, and I'm like, oh, my God. Those uh, little thunk it. sounds. Uh-huh. Just very, very real. I yeah. really liked it. Yeah, no, it's cool as hell. <laughs> uh, and, and just in general, it's just such a well-shot movie that it's one of my biggest takeaways from the film is just how beautiful it is. Like, it's a very pretty movie. Yes, the cinematographer is great. And it uses a lot with mirror reflections, seeing things through glass. Uh, for instance, the opening shot is very disorienting, looking up at the buildings in Chicago, at the skyline from the ground. And it's like you're driving along the street, but it's looking straight up and tilted back just ever so slightly. So it gives this really disorienting feel. And then they, the buildings disappear into the clouds, which is a reflection of the first movie where the camera was in the sky looking down on the streets yes. and flying along. So there's a lot of, like, mirror stuff going on. And even if it wasn't that mirror stuff, it's still just well-framed action on the screen. And it's just really, really well shot. So in addition to Nia DaCosta, who directed the film, I also want to call out cinematographer John Gulisarian, director of photography on this film. Eventually, it becomes his reflection again, and he kind of calms down. When then, she comes out of the room. But yeah. then we see the Candyman just ever so slightly in the back of a mirror. Yeah. So uh -huh. you know he's still there, and that kind of freaks our main guy out, Anthony. So he leaves, and then we get a cool shot of uh, the art critic being killed. And it, yes, the death scenes are neat looking. And again, it is the cinematography, and it is well done. But it is not scary. Yeah. As the camera flies outward into the city, looking back at her apartment, which is well lit, and the entire wall is a window, she gets stabbed by something slammed against the window and dragged across the window, painting a line of blood behind her. He talks more to the laundromat guy who tells him more about pain like that lasts forever. Every few decades, someone comes along and is reincarnated as him. He's real. Dale is real. Samuel Sherman. Daniel Robitaille, they're all real. Candyman is how we deal with the fact that these things happened. That they're still happening. We get the conversation between Brianna and her brother, and he's just like, you don't have to be there every time an artist has a psychotic break. Uh -huh. And then we get the awkwardly placed scene of the teenage girls, because earlier at the gallery, a teenage girl had seen the installation and decided that she was going to do it with her friends. Yeah. And this is just such a trailer shot, and it just does nothing for the rest of the movie. Like, 
they talk about it, I don't know, once. Mm-hmm. It does two things. We get a bee moving through a pocket mirror. So Candyman's getting more powerful. Mm. And we also see him floating in a swarm of bees. Like from the third movie. <laughs> He's yeah, getting but, more powerful. Uh, this writer knows nothing about teenage girls. Yeah. Fucking, she puts lipstick on. And then she puts her lipstick, which she puts on her lips, people, on the mirror of the bathroom, which is so disgusting. Yeah, so she she puts the the lipstick as eyes on the mirror first, then on her mouth, and then kisses the mirror in a public school. Like, (laughs) you know nothing about teenage girls. You just fucking know nothing. To be fair, Nia DaCosta is one of the writers. Uh, Well, she she should have spoke up here. (laughs) Because I'm sorry if you do that, that's really gross. Yeah, uh-huh. Well, it doesn't matter she's going to die people, anyway. but that's gross. She won't get any sort of mouth infection or anything like that. She's going to die anyway. Yes. Uh, yeah, because they're all going to decide to do the Candyman thing, and they're all going to die, and he's not going to kill some chick. Because he just doesn't want so to. So one girl leaves, and we assume she survives, because she refuses to do it. They do the Candyman thing. Then this young black girl comes in and goes to the bathroom, puts her headphones on. They tease her by banging on the door. And when they go to leave, the door is locked. And then they're all brutally murdered. And we see that from the perspective of the girl in the bathroom stall. Underneath the stall doors and through the pocket mirror that gets dropped. Yes. Mm -hmm. We have another interesting detail about Brianna. Remember that dinner scene that we kind of skipped through real oh, yeah. fast? Uh-huh. There was this lady there who she was trying to impress. Well, that lady is now talking to Brianna, and she's just totally like, you've got a fascinating story to talk about your father's death, and now you're with this guy. What a, what, like, and it's just like. Well, what it is, is it's these people who are in positions of power, white and black, exploiting black pain because... They think they have something to gain from it. Yes. That's all so that is. everybody exploits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then he leaves. Anthony leaves in the middle of this dinner because he finds out well, that, that our critic was killed. These are two separate things. This did not happen at the No, dinner. no, no. I know. But I'm saying when he leaves that dinner and he, you know, it's a whole big scene that she told him not to make a scene or whatever is because – Everyone finds out that the art critic was killed. Yes. And so, yeah, he runs Which off. Which he had just left her apartment. Exactly. So now Brianna is meeting with this art dealer or whatever. No, she's a museum owner or she runs a museum or something like she's a curator. And she wants to hire Brianna, but only because of the story around her mm-hmm. and not because of her actual skill as an art dealer. Mm-hmm. This is when he'll go to the hospital only- Because his fingernail falls out. (laughs) (laughs) Only to discover that he was born in Cabrini Green. Like, I don't know what this hospital, like, they just, like, yeah, you can leave. You have some sort of crazy ass disease, but you can go. You might be contagious. We don't know. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, he gets his his hand wrapped up and the nurse or, or the doctor or whomever comes in says, oh, welcome back. And he's like, what are you talking about? I've never been here. And she's like, well, our records say you were born here. And he's like, what? And he says, I was born on the south side. On the south side of Chicago. <laughs> it's the baddest bad, bad part Leroy of town. <laughs> anyway. So he's like, oh, what the God, fuck? It's a great song. <laughs> and he actually goes to confront his mother about this. And who is his mother? 
amazingly, it's the same actress from the original film, which was really cool. Uh, really appreciated it. Amazingly. And she looks wonderful. Vanessa Williams playing Anne-Marie McCoy, who looks like not a fucking day older. Looks better now than she did then. <laughs> She's the mother of the baby who was kidnapped and that Helen Lyle saved. Must be nice. Yeah, right? Be real nice. And... He confronts her about it, and when he says the name Candyman, she has one of the best, most honest reactions. Like, it's a physical sort of, like, she doesn't even know what she's doing. Where she just kind of, like, claps her hands and says no. Something they used to call Candyman. Don't. Don't say that. Her body just viscerally reacts to hearing the name Candyman. It's like... Oh, I love that moment. It's really, really good. But it she has to reveal She has to reveal the truth that, yeah, you were kidnapped. You were that baby in that story. But Helen Lyle saved you. She wasn't the one that kidnapped you. Yes. And she's trying to tell him, like, don't talk about it. But it's like, yeah. it's way too late. That ship has sailed. And he's like, do I look normal, mama? Yeah, Look he's all me. fucked up, mm -hmm. and it's crawling up to the side of his neck and his face, and it's infecting, like, an entire half of him. Uh, he ends up just leaving her behind to cry, uh, and he goes back to his studio, where Brianna confronts him, sees all of his work, and it's all... He tells her, don't look at that, and breaks a mirror when she tries to show him that Candyman isn't real, and that this, causes her to freak the fuck out and leave. This studio scene where he's smashing mirrors is so melodramatic. Like, it's so... It's over the top and unnecessary, and I did not buy into the emotions whatsoever. Yes, it felt a little over the top. The fact that he wouldn't make sure that she understood why he was behaving the way he was is yeah. a little silly. So Brianna's gonna make the decision that they need to separate. And she's going to be end, end up spending time with uh, her brother and his boyfriend. But something is going to cause her to go looking for him, and she will wind up at the... Well, Troy gets another great line that I think we need to not miss, which is that ain't a dick on the planet good enough to offset a demonology hobby. I mean, he literally was like, I summoned Candyman. And I'm like... Candyman ain't real, nigga. I told you not to start dating that dapper Dan ass little... Basquiat ass fucking no job sunrise. Troy, okay. You know, dick on the planet good enough to offset a demonology hobby. Okay, Troy, stop. Just what? It's the truth. If Grady came up in here smashing mirrors, mirrors. He's right. This is so good. He has the two best lines in the entire fucking movie. Troy's great. But yeah, she goes looking for him. Be oh, because she finds the pen. He had mentioned that he heard this story from the guy who owns the laundromat. Right. He had given Anthony a pen so he can take notes about the story. Right. And then she finds the pen later and is like, oh, this must be that laundromat and goes to check it out. And she has a lot of really great moments where she's just like, nope. Yes. It's and it's not obnoxious. Excellent. It feels real. Like, yeah. That's something I wrote I, I wrote down is that it felt real and didn't feel like something that a writer puts in winking at the audience. It was a wink, but it wasn't overt. It was so good. It's something I would do. She goes to the back room and there's nobody there. And she opens the door to the basement and it's a stairway going down into darkness. And she just goes... Nope. And closes the door. And that's exactly what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Close. Great, 
loved it. It wasn't like, I'm not going down there. Only an idiot would go down there. Slam. <laughs> Pause for laughter from the audience. Like, it wasn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. It just felt very clean and smooth, and I appreciated that. Yes. But she ends up getting abducted by somebody wearing a brown coat. Yep. And it's the laundromat guy. Surprise, surprise. Evil villain. Even though not really, but kind of. It's all warped. We're not clear about what's going on. (laughs) Yeah, it gets really fucking muddled here. This is William Burke again, who was that kid who screamed when he saw Sherman Fields and got Sherman justice, but doesn't seem to understand that that justice isn't going to happen. But that's why he's made a villain. So, like, there is a, a sort of connection there. But the movie itself just feels all over the place that it's hard to track, you know? So anyway, yes, he kidnaps her and brings her to this church. Yes, this is a disciple twist, just like in three, where he is actually trying to promote the myth of Candyman. He's the only one who recognizes that Candyman is a different person every single time. There's some black man that gets beaten down and murdered in some form of injustice. And then he becomes part of it by sawing the guy's hand off. He saws Anthony's hand Everything off. Everything is muddied. Who's what? like in a coma. What are you I, trying I think to this, say? this could be a metaphor for he's a black man who's just sort of letting this stuff happen to him and he's he only cries he only sheds a single tear, but he doesn't react otherwise. And maybe that's saying something. Again, this is all commentary, things that I am not qualified to say definitively what's going on. But it is present. I he thought he was saws off like his in hand. a trance. Yeah. But I'm saying, what is that trance a metaphor for? Is it the complacency of people who are part of that community but aren't willing to do anything about what's going on? Like, is that what that is? I don't know. I don't know. I am not qualified to talk about it. The hook He puts a hook in him and the movie goes weird places from here and it's just so loose. It needed to be tighter. It's short, right? There's not a lot of time left in the movie. It is short what's going to happen. But it is like, and then this happened and then this happens and then this happens and it's bad storytelling. And that's my biggest problem, which is frustrating because... Nia DaCosta is supposed to be this new filmmaker protege that's coming up, and I think she did a lot of really great things, but honestly, I think this movie should have been made five to ten years from now after she had a chance to make other movies, because she has a talent, and it is there, and she's very, very talented, but she is untested. And I don't mean that, you know, people who are young can't be talented, I mean, she's making things that are mistakes, because she's never had the opportunity to make them before. And so she ends up making them on these big stakes movies. And that's a bummer. And it's Jordan Peele, who I think is very talented. And I think he does know how to tell a story and make a metaphor, even if it can be super heavy handed. So it's really disappointing that the the last act of this film is so slipshod that I'm a little bit bummed. It needed to be tighter. And it could have dealt with more time. Again, There's things missing from what happens here at the end. But yes, so he's trying to physically turn Anthony into the Candyman so he can be the new Candyman myth. And he ends up sort of becoming that. He's still Anthony, but he's in a trance. He ends up killing William Burke, this guy who's gone crazy and decided he was a disciple. 
But he doesn't. I forgot. Brianna is the one oh, who gets to kill right. him. Oh, you're right. You're so fucking right. Yes. I forgot about that. She, like, takes a screwdriver or some shit to his face. To his face. over and over and it's over again. And this is the first utterance we get out of Anthony after, quote unquote, turning into Candyman, where he says something to the effect of, I think he's dead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's dead. <laughs> it's really funny. He's yeah. just exhausted and leaning against the doorframe, and he ends up collapsing, and she holds him in his arms, and then the police show up. And she's like, Anthony, Anthony, don't die, don't die, or whatever. Policeman comes in and says, put the weapon down, bang, 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 and kills Anthony in her arms. And I'm like, ah. listen, I get that cops do fucking horrible things, and it's really fucking bad. And I believe that shit like this happens, but you are a movie and I think it needs to be a little bit more like if you want to convince me that this stuff happens, you got to spoon feed it to me, I think a little bit more because that I was just like, oh, well, that's just unbelievable. They shoot a like a billion times. They shoot a man who was lying, dying on the floor. And he's in her arms, arm, like in her lap. And you're just like. I don't think it's physically possible. Right. How would her legs get all shot up? To be shooting at this person and she would not get shot. Like if you wanted a moment where just doesn't seem physically correct. (laughs) If you wanted a moment where a cop comes in and shoots a black man without cause. Yes, please put that in the movie. But the way they put it in the movie, it was so shitty. It was this is just stupid. So she ends up getting handcuffed and put in one of the cop cars. And this is the moment that I actually really did like where there's another cop that comes in and sits with her and basically threatens her. Here's the thing. If she were poor, I would believe this. No, she's a rich privileged. She's art not dealer. poor. She yeah, could uh-huh. lawyer up. Uh-huh. I just don't imagine that someone as intelligent as her wouldn't know that I'm just going to get yeah. a lawyer. Like, right. Yeah, and this fuck is, you. I'm getting a lawyer. Yeah. And I'm going to make this public and you're going to go under it. Like, because right. she's rich and educated. Like, she's not poor and uneducated. If she was, I would believe this. Right. Yes. But uh, it's not so much about the belief as it is like a tactic that's used to try to cover up this stuff. And I thought that was compelling. He was threatening her, not knowing anything about who she is or anything. So I believe he would try this, right? It's very unfortunate what happened to your man in there. We've been looking for him. Got a tip he'd be here. You know anything about that? Whatever you tell us helps. Any cooperation is noted. Saying what you saw when he came at Jones. And Jones obviously knowing what he'd done before, seeing his hook, knowing you were in danger, had no choice but to discharge his weapon. Doesn't sound right to you? Or she's an accomplice. She held the victims down, he cut them up. He died coming at a cop. She goes to jail for the rest of her life. 
Which story is it? Can I see myself? What? In the mirror. And then she says Candyman five times. And then a man comes out of the building all tore up. And then there are all these bees. And then all the cops are firing at Anthony, who's sort of been resurrected. And he's the new Candyman. He's one of several men who become Candyman. And again, not going to kill the one who called him. Going to kill all the other people within that vicinity. Well, now I think it's this is this is now a person who is learning to channel that rage and pain into something that's much more effective. I think this is a change for Candyman in this moment and this moment only. <laughs> I think in general you're right, and I agreed with you earlier 100%. But I think this one makes sense. Like, if this was the only one where that happened, then yeah. It's what she's learning is how to channel that pain and that anger to take care of what's actually oppressing them. Like, that's great. That That's what Candyman needed. Because too bad he, was he didn't too realize reckless. that when those two girls called him in the 70s. Yes, totally. Which is another scene where you're just like, I don't know that that was necessary. Yeah, it's William's sister and her friend. Again, just muddies things up. Yeah. So, kills everyone, kills the cop that's in the front seat, and then leaves her alive, goes around a corner. She's, she's able to get out, but she's still handcuffed. Which I was like... How is she going to get unhandcuffed? I don't know. But she goes around the corner to find Anthony, but it's not Anthony. He's covered in bees. Covered in bees! Ah, I'm covered in bees! Ah, covered in bees! Floating on Floating, bees, which yes. they took from three, well, which I'm no they one that. has said anything about. I said something about that earlier. I know, but what I mean is like we Nobody talking about like, this movie mentions that. Nobody yeah. says that. <laughs> They took it from three, which is a big deal because a lot of people do not like three. <laughs> and uh, three is better than two. Yes. Two is the worst one. I mean, honestly, also I'll tell you right now, it's number one, number four, number three, number two. <laughs> like that's the order of, of quality. But anyway, she goes around and he's floating there and he's all covered in bees. Covered in bees. Covered in bees. <laughs> and the bees sort of reveal his face. And we get for some reason a de-aged Tony Todd. Who asks her to, what, tell his story or some shit? Tell everyone. Tell everyone. Yes, that's the last line. Tell everyone. Oh, we also missed that William, when he was chasing her throughout this creepy place, started singing the Candyman song to be creepy. And it's like, oh, come on. Did he? Yes. Who can take a song? Yes. Uh, the candy man can. And it's this moment where they're trying to make it really super fucking creepy. But like, how lame is that? You think about in a real scenario, an actual human being trying to creep somebody out while they're chasing them around. dude who runs a laundromat he's not some criminal fucking mastermind <laughs> anyway he's not the fucking joker okay mm -hmm. anyway that was stupid but yeah we get a dh tony todd which is a bummer because we don't get his actual face on screen we get a cgi version of his face and he says tell everyone and probably the biggest bummer about this movie is that because the story that the movie was telling and i respect that and I understand that 
we didn't get very much Tony Todd at all. Which is a real big bummer. Yeah. I appreciated that they put him in there. Yes, the yes, absolutely. That they're like, no, this is the same Candyman. We're not writing a new story. This is the same one. What you got in the first movie was one of like five or six different Candymen. So over the credits, we see the other deaths that created the other versions of Candyman. And it's very tragic and heartbreaking in the paper cutout form. And that's the end of the movie. That's how the movie ends. Again, only an hour and a half. Not that it felt short, but it felt incomplete. The whole thing it's trying to say, obviously, with the multiple candy men, is that these are cultures that are caught in a loop. Uh, that this story is told over and over and over again, and it's the same thing every time, and nothing gets done about it. Daniel Robitaille was the first, but he wasn't the last. And the myth of Candyman is how this culture deals with these cycles of violence created from their pain. Yeah, I get all that. But it doesn't translate as well to what's literally happening on screen. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's probably one of the biggest problems with the movie. And with the franchise in general. It's a problem the franchise has. It's not perfect. I love the first Candyman movie. But we gave it. 75 and 80. It wasn't like up in the 90s for us. Well, I feel like the first movie wasn't trying to turn him into a savior of any kind. I think the first movie was right. very much like The Ring in that this is this pain was so huge yes. that it caused this thing to keep recurring, this thing to stay here, this hatred to stay yes. here. And I don't think the first film was trying to turn that into a savior. Yes, the man who died, he didn't deserve to die. Just like in The Ring, little girl didn't mm. fucking deserve to die. But the myth he became is just an indiscriminate killer. And then throughout the series, they have tried to turn him into a savior. And I think that this is the best one to do it that did its best. But it mm -hmm. still can't, like, because it comes from that original idea of just, like, he just kills people. Yes. You can't take that out of the story, and so it kind of well, ruins this allegory you're trying so, to make. Yes, yes, 100%, and that, that's sort of what I'm saying here, but there is, they do try to change things in this movie from that to directing this hatred towards something productive. Metaphorically speaking. Metaphorically speaking. By killing the racist white cops, right? Like, that's what this movie is doing, where at the end of, by the end of the movie, this new Candyman, Anthony's Candyman, is more aware than any prior Candyman. And that's sort of representative of what's happening within the zeitgeist as a whole, is that people are being more aware. And you know, saying their names. And so that's where all that ties together. Again, there's a lot more to be said about this that we are not qualified to talk about, so we're not even going to go any deeper than that. So, Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to guess it's very high. I'm going to guess it is 93. 84. Oh, okay. Candyman takes an incisive, visually thrilling approach to deepening the franchise's mythology. That's what I'm saying. I think they're deepening it. They're adding to it. But you're right. They can't take away from what came before, which kind of hurts their metaphor, right? And terrifying audiences along the way. Eh, I don't know. It wasn't very terrifying at all. 
I will also add that there is an audience score that is lower of 72. And there, every once in a while, there is an audience consensus statement that Rotten Tomatoes adds. And this one for the audience is the 2021 Candyman may not be as scary as the original, but it expands the story in ways that fans of the franchise should enjoy. I agree. I think if you like the Candyman franchise, you'll like this movie. It is the second best Candyman movie. And yet I'm probably going to give it a higher score than I gave my original because I think that this is a better movie. Sure. Not necessarily a better horror movie. Versus like what Bernard Rose did back in the 90s where he created a scarier movie, mm-hmm. but it's not as good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. So it has a Metacritic of 72 as well, which matches that audience Rotten Tomatoes score. And a cinema score of a B. People came out of this movie generally feeling good about it. Mm-hmm. As a reminder, we gave the first one a 75 and an 80. The second one a 5 and a 10, respectively, Kelsey, then me. And Candyman 3 just now, earlier in the episode, a 40 and a 45. What would you give 2021's Candyman? I will give it an 80. Okay, you know it's really funny? I was going to do a 75. <laughs> so we sort of flipped on this one. I think it's a very good movie. I just don't think it's very scary. And I think that it suffers from trying to take a character that already existed and trying to turn it into something else. I think that that was a good idea. Unfortunately, it was just very difficult to do with what you already had from the source material. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I can definitely see that. I think the first movie has maybe just a warm place in my heart. I think the grittiness of the first movie, like, and this is something that the movie is doing on purpose, right? The 2021 version is it is a lot cleaner. Like the 90s version is grungier and dirtier. It's still the slums. And the 2021 version that takes place in 2019 talks about how they realize that they made the slums. And so they tear it all down and they build it up prettier. So all the, you know, artists and white people move in. I realize why they had to do it in 2019. Because it's pre-COVID, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit, all these movies are going well, to have to be also, pre-COVID. I think also they filmed a lot of it back then, too. It just didn't come out until 2021. So this movie sort of cleaning up visually is reflective of that gentrification. They made it more appealing for your average audience, which is what that gentrification is, right? So there are layers here <laughs> <laughs> that I really, really liked. And it, like I say, it is beautiful it is a just gorgeously shot film it's a little creepy and there are great moments that i really like but i don't think it's as effective and it feels incomplete like we said and it's not scary at all no at all so yeah i think 75 is where i'm gonna land on this one still really good ultimately tied between the two before uh, the first movie and the fourth movie. Mm -hmm. They're definitely the standouts of this franchise. Yes. Three is not as bad as everyone says. No. And two is pointless garbage. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. That's how we feel about the Candyman franchise, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) So we've done, we've wrapped up the Candyman franchise. Done. Kelsey, what are we watching next week? Next week is a recommendation week. Woo woo. Now, I lost a very long time ago who recommended this movie. It was seriously one of the first people 
who ever recommended anything to us. So whatever our first recommendation movie was, whoever that was, I'm pretty sure is the one who recommended that we watch Pumpkinhead. Okay, so I do have a name under Pumpkinhead you on, do? on my list, yes. Oh, okay. And that is Kryptonian Orphan. I who, think that, that who recommended person, it recently. Yes, recommended it recently. Last, well, and by recently we mean uh, last April, right? <laughs> but yes, we had had Pumpkinhead recommended before that, but we don't have a record of who that was. Whoever it was, I think, was the very first person. Whoever we, whatever first recommendation movie we did. So thank you to whoever it was that wanted us to watch that. Thank you to Kryptonian Orphan. Pumpkinhead. We will be watching that, and we will be pairing that with another recommendation of A Quiet Place. And I think that was Harry? That was Harry, yes. So thank you to everyone who recommended films. Keep those recommendations uh, incoming. We have a huge list, and we do not do it in order. So if you have something you've recommended and we haven't gotten to it yet, I'm sorry. We may or we may not ever get to it. But we like to know what people want to hear about. Mm -hmm. So keep recommending things. Mm -hmm. uh, because who knows, we might even do your recommendation next week. We've done that before. Yes, so, that's true. So, yeah, please keep those recommendations incoming. In the meantime, thank you to Harry and Kryptonian Orphan and uh, anyone else who may have recommended either Pumpkinhead or A Quiet Place. We'll be watching those next week. Mm -hmm. Until then, you can find us at our website, podcemetery.com, and on Twitter, at podcemetery. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice and rate and review. If you leave us a five-star written review, that is the biggest help you can give us there. Bigger than that is sharing us with your friends, and even bigger than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? I am the writing on the walls. I am the sweet smell of blood on the street, the buzz that echoes in the alleyways. They will say I shed innocent blood. You are far from innocent, but they will say you were. That's all that matters. Who can take a sunrise? Sprinkle it with you. Cover it with chocolate and a miracle too. The candy man. The candy man. Ooh, the candy man can. The candy man can. The candy man can, cause he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. Makes the world taste good. Uh, who can take a rainbow? Who can take a rainbow? Wrap it in a side. Wrap it in a side. Soak it in the sun and make a groovy lemon pie. <laughs> Okay. Okie dokie. Let's do it. Okie dokie. What's blood for if not for shedding? I don't know. Somewhere in here, somebody does a weird sidestep that I thought was odd. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's never really been an actual thing. It's right. been more a UL than anything. Yes. I said that in the last one, too. I've already included my favorite UL. Uh. <laughs>